Hello, folks, and welcome to The Farm, a podcast dedicated to culture, parapolitics, and high weirdness in all its many forms. This is your host, Recluse, aka Stephen Snyder, the longtime curator of the Biza blog and author of A Special Relationship, Trump, Epstein, and the Secret History of the Anglo-American Establishment. If you like what you hear here today, be sure to check me out at visaview.blogspot.com and procure a copy of that book and my other works at the farm's official store, which is at thefarmpodcast.store. That is thefarmpodcast, all one word, dot store. And please consider signing up for the farm's Patreon. You get two additional full-length shows per month. That's between three and four hours of bonus material with exclusive guests and content. And we've got some good guests coming up in the near future. I'm going to have Russ Baker on, Eric Davis, Robert Guffey. It's going to be great. And that same thing applies to today's show. I have got a dynamic duo of guests for me with us here today. One of them is a repeater, the other is making his maiden voyage on the farm. As for the noob, he has been a writer for Project Censored, Daily Censored, and Truth Out, among many others. He has received uh, the Project Censored Most Censored News story twice. Uh, for his, one of them was for his article on neoliberalism, charter schools, and the Chicago model slash Obama and Duncan's educational policy, like Bush's or only worse, which was published by Counterpunch in August 24, 2009. He has also published more than seven books on education in the past 20 years, including Charter School Movement, History Politics, Policies, Economics, and Effectiveness. And finally, he has been investigating parapolitics for nearly 50 years. Folks, I give you guys the legend, Dr. Danny Weil. Now, Danny, thank you so much for dropping by today, sir. And I was also hoping you could get into a bit of your extensive activism that you've done over the course of your life. It is nothing short of remarkable. Well, thank you for having me on this show. And a hello to uh, uh, Russ. It's so so uh, honored to be on the show with Russ. Um, as to myself and my activism, I'll, I'll be brief. Uh, 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 the Vietnam War, of course, was the first. Uh, I'm an older man, so the Vietnam War was my first plunge into the world of understanding what's going on in the world, at least from my point of view, and the struggles that accompanied that. From there, when the war was over in 1975, and the uh, many Vietnam veterans were returning. Um, there were a lot of activists uh, that had no idea what they were going to do. For example, uh, Abby Hoffman was underground. Uh, the Weather Underground was still underground. Uh, above ground, uh, we had Tom Hayden. He kind of drifted to Berkeley. Then he didn't really know what to do. He got kicked out of Red House in Berkeley. Ended up, of course, with his legacy until his uh, death recently. And there were others uh, on the East Coast as well. The war was over. And now what are we going to do? And uh, we guess we got to get jobs. And Reaganism is coming into play, et cetera, et cetera. Neoliberalism, of course, started in 73 uh, with the, the, well, earlier, but I mean, with the Nobel Prize for, for Mises. So um, many of us, like myself, in 1975, decided that what we really needed to do at this point was to go engage in local politics. And that meant uh, actually uh, the initiative processes, taking over city halls, planning commissions, land use, uh, rent control. So I uh, wrote the rent control ordinance for the state of California back in 1976 when I was 23. I, I, I was not a lawyer at that time. 
And after four years of activism, uh, we did get it successfully passed and it was upheld by the Supreme Court. But in, at, in community activism became uh, really what I got involved in from 75 to 83 as a way to transition from the war to, to, to activism uh, in my neighborhoods. And because uh, the anti-war movement to me was more than the anti-war movement. It was a movement uh, toward a different kind of society and a different kind of, of, of way of communing with people. And after that, a brief period of time, in 1983, I lost a very large court case against Sheila Packard after four years in a land use uh, deal. And uh, I was broke and disenchanted. And uh, I decided I wanted to go to Nicaragua and uh, be a part of the revolution if I could possibly be so as well as to offer cover to the Nicaraguan people so that there would be no bombing campaign as there was in Vietnam. I mean, that's one thing Jane Fonda did do is she did provide some cover, but there were really no activists during the Vietnam War that went to Vietnam and, and lived as residents. So, um, so I, uh, I moved to Nicaragua, living uh, 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 by bus from California and making my way through uh, all of Central America, et cetera, until I hit the Honduran border and then I crossed the demilitarized zone. Uh, it, this is 1985 in January around the 1st, uh, at the height of the war, and there was a five mile demilitarized zone and we, we crossed it, my wife and I, and uh, we be, began to, went to, Nicar went, went to Managua eventually and began to, uh, I began to work with the Ministry of Culture under libertarian theologist uh, Ernesto Cardinal, who also recently has passed away, and uh, is translating uh, uh, for American audiences or Anglo audiences of what was going on in Nicaragua and became one of 227 residents, um, uh, foreign residents, uh, and we kind of encircled the country. And though I can't take credit for uh, no bombing, uh, we, uh, I, I do believe that the presence of activists in, in the area at the time had a great deal of a substantial impact. I then uh, left uh, in, in 86, uh, and I came back, and uh, I decided to become a, a first, second grade teacher, kindergarten teacher for mostly Salvadorian and Nicaraguan immigrants that were forced over the border at that time due to war. Uh, and they ended up in Los Angeles Unified School District, many of them in South Central Los Angeles, where I, I worked for many years as a grammar school teacher. And then from then I just went on with my life, engaging in activism of, of all sorts that I won't uh, bother the, uh, the audience with, but mostly community activism of, of, of public records act uh, of stuff against governments, uh, uh, city council meetings, et cetera, et cetera. And, uh, eventually made my way to be an old man. And so I guess that's where I am now. Oh, it is a pleasure to have you on here, sir. Um, I mean, certainly I think it's going to be fantastic when we get into uh, some of the latter periods in the 80s and so forth to get some of your firsthand accounts of what all was going on um, in Central America during that time frame. Sadly, um, a lot of Americans just do not realize you know, how brutal the dirty wars really were in much of Latin America from the 70s and 80s onward. Um, it's truly a national tragedy. All right. As to the repeater, he is also a very special one. In the parapolitical field, he is a legend in his own right. 
He is one of the founders of Public Eye Magazine and the Political Research Associates, and he is best known for authoring a cl the classic works Old Nazis, The New Right, and The Republican Party, and The Coors Connection. Folks, I give you guys the legend, Russ Ballant. Russ, thank you so much for dropping by again today, sir. Thank you for your kind words. I'm glad to join you, Steve, Danny. Good to be with you both. Thank you. Now, Russ, you're still doing activism too, right? Uh, do you want to give us a bit of a rundown of that before we get going? Well, um, uh, you know, I, uh, I continue to uh, uh, research and write on uh, right-wing uh, power thrusts in the United States for many years after my book was uh, published. Uh, originally as a report in 1988, and then by South End Press in 1991. And, uh, you know, I, I did a lot of focus on uh, what is co commonly called the religious right, the theocratic mu movement uh, in their uh, dominionist uh, 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 efforts and their uh, organizing through shepherding discipleship cults uh, across the planet. And, um, you know, I was, I was always struck by how important it was in their worldview to destroy the public education system in the United States. And uh, at that time, I had uh, kids in public schools in Detroit, and uh, I uh, saw that work being done right in my own hometown. <laughs> where uh, the DeVos family, uh, major funders of uh, James Dobson and other uh, uh, right-wing uh, networks, the Heritage Foundation, you know, the, the range of the hard right. Uh, and the DeVosses had put a plan together to dismantle all, all public education in the state of Michigan. And they wanted to start with the Detroit public school system for the obvious reason that it was black controlled and it would be, therefore, uh, the white majority would not object too much to anything that was done against Detroit because of its uh, black population and black political leadership. And so I became involved in, uh, in some of those fights and uh, I wrote a book in 1996 called The Religious Right in Michigan Politics um, because at that time, uh, you know, uh, those of us who were talking to each other around the country uh, or talking about these national organizations and, uh, you know, the Christian coalition had been formed in 1988, 87, 88, to start working at local state levels, but nobody had really written, uh, Jerry Sloan in California had written uh, some, uh, some report on uh, some of the work going on in California, but, uh, I tried to do something a little bigger with a uh, with a full study of the funding networks where they where they were penetrating, what they were controlling, what their agenda was, uh, what the activist core was. After, but you know, after prefacing it with the uh, description of the of the theocratic elements uh, and why they were could be called theocratic uh, in in my report. So um, in all of that, uh, in some ways, became a trade-off between doing 
national and international research versus a local state uh, kind of effort. And there was nobody else in Michigan that was doing this. Uh, and when I, when I published it, it, it opened up some people's eyes, but not one newspaper would do a story about it, you know? So, you know, we've been in that world <laughs> where, you, you know, if it's not the news that fits their framework. It doesn't, it isn't news, you know? And so, um, I've been, uh, I, I've been trying to measure myself out, but, you know, it, it, it as you know, I, I think, Mike, no, um, in 2010, uh, a, a, a high tech company executive named Rick Snyder got, he was uh, involved with Gateway, um, uh, became governor of Michigan and put a law together that would allow them to take uh, over and dictate uh, school control of school districts, controls of cities, uh, and uh, neutralize any elected leadership in those entities. And all he targeted, of course, were black schools, districts, and black cities, black-led cities, Flint, Detroit, Benton Harbor, and some others. And uh, so, I mean, I, it was like, I, I felt uh, we were fighting the Jim Crow South right here in, right here in uh, Michigan. Uh, and, uh, and it became very, very brutal. And it's still brutal today. The fight hasn't gone. I mean, the, the war against the people is still on in Detroit. I'll give an example. Two out of three parcels of the city of Detroit, 382,000 land parcels. This mayor who was brought from outside of Detroit and propped up by the media and big money and got elected mayor um, uh, was uh, over the eight years he's been mayor put 261,000 parcels up for foreclosure out of 382,000 parcels in the city. Change completely as much as he can, stripping home ownership from black population. And uh, when they're put up for foreclosure, uh, you know, outsiders, uh, people outside the city, uh, outside the United States are buying up these lands and they put them in, together in bundles and parcels and sell them, sell them and are just stripping stripping the city of its black population and of uh and its capacity to live here in the process of doing this he also uh set did something that no other city in the world has ever done he started he continued a massive water shutoff policy where he sh shut off water at 144,000 homes now there's the 250,000 residential properties in Detroit, he shut off water at all, claiming they were behind on their water bill. Uh, I had the privilege of being a water plant operator for the city of Detroit, and I know, knew the system backwards and forwards because we were always fighting the suburbs over them trying to take it away from Detroit. And uh, and uh, he was just gutting the people, savage attacks, but always in it was always being framed by the media as some kind of response to some kind of necessity, and never. Well, you know, it's, it's always to this day, the, the people are confused on the subject, but it's been a real war right here in this city to maintain 
something re some resemblance of civilization most the mayor takes money out of the property taxes 99% of the people owns, and he takes it from the libraries and the schools and gives it to his business of uh, contacts downtown he's literally looting millage property taxes for education and giving it to business and he's trying to uh, develop the the uh, bring in white developers and populations and people from the suburbs to come in and occupy and retake Detroit. And so that's the kind of war we got going on here right now. And it's, it's, it's become rather consuming uh, on my part uh, because uh, I, I've lost touch with what's going on more on the national level as a result, but we're, li I'm living in a, I feel I'm living in a war zone right here. Well, Rush, you're living behind enemy lines. There's no doubt about that. But you also did uh, run for school district, and you also did run for city council, did you not? Oh, that's correct. Yep. Maybe you could just tell a little bit more yep. about that. Well, uh, this the school when the school board race, uh, I, I took that on. Uh, the governor of Michigan that preceded Snyder was Granholm, nominally a Democrat. That, but one that came out of a corrupt political machine. And uh, she imposed a control over uh, the schools, which the constitution doesn't allow. They don't, the Michigan constitution gives, does not accord any power at all to the governor over education. It's all vested in the state board of education. It's very explicit and clear, but everybody pretends that language doesn't exist and let her take over. And uh, she, put the school board, uh, neutralized the school board. And so I was running really against that. So um, the, uh, the newspapers wouldn't give me any coverage. <laughs> the newspapers were lock and step with the governor uh, taking down the school system. And uh, they even said uh, that, uh, and on their editorial page that they were doing a news blackout on the school race because they don't want anybody voting even for a good candidate because every vote legitimizes the school board and we don't want to legitimize the school board. In other words, we want, we want Lansing to, and the state capital to dictate the terms of education in Detroit. Um, and so, uh, you know, that didn't, that didn't go anywhere, um, you know, and other, other than the community networks and the education, uh, uh, the, the teachers union and others that supported me, uh, you know, uh, there really wasn't an election, it, you know, there it, it was just balloting, I guess you could say. I, I ran for uh, city council, again, over the takeover. At that time, the state of Michigan under Rick Snyder had declared the city of Detroit in bankruptcy, and uh, 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 they were or they were impending. That was impending in 2013, and so I was I was running on a slate of keeping Detroiters in control of Detroit. Not on a slate, on a platform, keeping Detroiters in control of Detroit. <laughs> That's all it was, and not not the internet, you know, the Wall Street and financiers, because everything being done in Detroit. Is being, you know, it's it's all being played out on Wall Street. You know, the investors come in and see their opportunity to plund, to plunder, and uh, assets through the bankruptcy. 
you know, and I put the word bankruptcy in court because the city of Detroit wasn't bankrupt. The state of Michigan itself, which brought the bankruptcy illegally, the law says that the city has to bring it if it's over a city. The, uh, uh, the state of Michigan that brought that owed the city $500 million. Uh, what the downtown billionaire that owns Little Caesars Pizza, never buy C Little Caesars Pizza, by the way. Um, they owed uh, over $300 million to the city of Detroit. Uh, and I won't get into why, they just did. So there's eight, almost a billion dollars sitting out there that wasn't being collected and wasn't being paid. And all, and these very same people that owe this money were ranting about Detroit not having uh, uh, proper financing. And they, they took control. And now Little Caesars had a world, world uh, headquarters operation in a, a arena built for their hockey team, uh, built entire, almost entirely by taxpayers. This is how the looting goes. And uh, the, the taxpayers, money that was supposed to go to schools, that was supposed to go to libraries, that was supposed to go to other educational entities. It, you know, it, it's just getting stripped, you know, and, uh, you know, you, you, you know, you feel you're living in, uh, in another, another planet, you know, they, uh, the guy who's the uh, billionaire for, uh, that owns rock, uh, uh, rocket mortgage and, uh, so forth. The uh, Quicken loans, which the Obama administration prosecuted for fraudulent uh, financial uh, transactions in the back 10, eight or 10 years ago. Uh, th th this city working with the Trump administration gave him a tax-free zone for his whole downtown empire. He doesn't have to pay taxes. I mean, what kind of a planet are we living on here? You know, And this guy is the, the richest man in Michigan at least um, one of the, t and you know, he, this is a guy that kicks a million dollars to Donald Trump and, and then that paves the way for him getting all sorts of stuff. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's a highly, highly uh, corrupt environment we're in. And uh, I think it's hard to live in it and be talking about what's going on in, uh, you know, in uh, uh, Christendom College or uh, the 700 Club when you see the, see this, see people being devastated right on your own block, every, you know, all the time, you know, people being uh, stripped of their homes, people having their water shut off and so forth. The rising communicable diseases that comes from water shutoffs, it's occurred in Detroit. We had the highest COVID rates because of the anti-public health practices of the city of Detroit imposed by the state of Michigan. That's a long answer to your question, but you know the the war is real in in our in our daily lives here. You know, so you can't walk away from that. Uh, can I just respond for a minute? Oh, go for it. Go for it. You know, Russell and I spoke uh, earlier by phone, and he and I had something in common, and that was the public education aspect and and Detroit, because I was very active uh, in 29, 2010 with Detroit uh, Public Schools and uh, their unions. Uh, what, you just, what you described, Russ, in an abstract, but first of all, let me just say that, um, uh, uh, I don't know if people know this, but 
the Texas legislature has been signed into law about 10 years ago, had critical teaching completely removed from the curriculum of schools. Um, and we'll, we'll be talking more about that later as it, as it pertains to, to the topic really of our show, which is international fascism. But um, the attack on the mind and the uh, and reasoning in, in what, what I would look at as a post-enlightenment period in time history is, is phenomenal. But, but you had managed to, mentioned some things, Russ, and I wanted to highlight them because they're important, I think, to lead us into what Steve will, will help us with our discussion. You, you described what was called managerial control. And that's basically when a manager is appointed by somebody official in, in your case in, in Michigan, and they exert complete managerial control over the city. Now, city managers are, can be elected or they can be appointed. There's a number of ways that different cities do it. But when, when managerial control hit the, uh, Detroit, uh, that, that was the first step towards seizing control. And then, of course, there was mayoral control, which was a very large issue in a number of states, including Michigan, where mayoral control would allow the mayor to be a, in fact, a dictator. I uh, would be able to ignore city councils and planning commission recommendations and do whatever he or she wanted. And this, of course, enabled what you, you, you indicated, which is the asset stripping and the looting, or really the robbing of the public commons, <clears throat> which in many ways parallels what went on in New Orleans in 2005. Uh, but uh, there was really no excuse needed in Detroit because you have all the institutes that you mentioned that have been set up that you've done such a good job at speaking about. Um, I remember in 2010 when working with teachers that we occupied Brand Holmes' office over public education, and there was a back down. School boards, as you know now, are a big issue with what is called the neo-fascist or the far right or the alt-right. And so really, Russ, what you described when you described Detroit is you just described fascism. Right. A spoil system, right? A spoil system, and I'm hoping that um, uh, uh, what you're doing, running for city council, and or, and running for, for 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 school board, I think is now one of the most important things that American people can do, is that they need to make sure that their municipalities are protected from these fascists, because this is where they're headed now. This is their game plan. This is what they've stated. You can see in, in the local news, the school board issues that they're raising over critical race theory, et cetera, et cetera. If they seize the school boards and if they seize you know, the city councils and the planning commissions and the architectural commissions and water boards, et cetera, et cetera, then they basically created a fascist state. Yeah, and then no doubt about that. It's, and yeah. Oh, go ahead, Russ. No, I, 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 I'll, uh, I've been talking a lot, Steve. Go ahead. <laughs> That's okay. And it's important to understand that, I mean, this has been ongoing, uh, you know, really, I mean, I think at least formally since the late 70s, early yeah. 80s. I mean, this has been a big part of the, uh, the far right's takeover of the country for years now is uh, trying to target us at the local government level and then gradually moving up. And school boards have long been a, uh, a battlefield of choice for them. Uh, but getting into today's show, what we're going to try to do over the course of this series, which will probably be at least three installments, is explain how we got to this current state of affairs. Why is a formerly prosperous American city like Detroit 
uh, descending into a quasi-fascist state, if not openly fascist state. Well, we're going to try to explain that to you and explain in depth how it came to this country and the decades of history that have brought us to this point. But, you know, we are currently living in the legacy of it, and I think that's why it's important to uh, hear the uh, stories of what is happening on the front lines right now, to put this into perspective, because, I mean, as America has become more and more gentrified, uh, unfortunately, too many people, and specifically white people, live in gated communities in the suburbs, and they're totally cut off uh, from the type of stuff that goes on in the inner cities and, you know, increasingly in a lot of rural America as well. As many of you are probably aware, I am a resident of West Virginia, uh, which has long been one of the poorest states in the Union for, I think, well over a century now. And uh, in more recent years, it has been absolutely devastated with the opioid crisis and uh, the subsequent loss of uh, economic uh, incentives and all kinds of other things that have gone on in this state. And uh, I believe crucially right now, it is our one of our senators, I think, who's holding up the spending bill and current negotiations going on in Congress. So yeah, this is also another interesting area for uh, the current tragedy playing out in contemporary America. So this series is going to try to chronicle international fascism. For the first installment, we are going to look into the development of this beast. The international characteristics of fascism is an aspect that is grossly overlooked or misrepresented by most researchers. But fascism is fundamentally an international movement and one that is alive and well in the 21st century. And indeed, some of the strongest outposts are not uh, even in just the United States or Europe or Russia, but also in the developing world and especially the global South. So with that said, we're going to first define what fascism is which is easier said than done, though Danny has already kind of hinted at that and give us a bit of a foundation to work from. From there, we're going to trace its historic developments in the interwar years in Europe, but also how it took root in the United States. And then we'll get into the capitalists who supported Hitler, the German-American bun, and all the domestic intrigues that played out during the interwar years. To wrap up, we're going to shift gears and consider the final days of WW2 and the aftermath in which an unprecedented capital flight from Nazi Germany laid the foundation for the post-war resurgence of the fascist international. Folks, this is going to be a pivotal series on par with the one that I did on Wackle uh, during last year and parts of this year. John Brisson and perhaps a few other guests will also be joining us in some of the latter installments. So I think that should give us at least collectively over 100 years uh, researching a lot of these topics. Uh, We are going down some rabbit holes few have dared to explore. So on that note, let us get in here. So obviously our scope is a little epic, which can make discerning a starting point a bit difficult. But in this case, it seems obvious. Defining fascism. Despite the proliferation of self-proclaimed anti-fascist activists out there today, lots of people struggle coming up with a clear-cut definition uh, when pressed on the matter. So for everyone's sake, let's define fascism before we really get going. This way, the listeners will know specifically what we're talking about, and hopefully that will con- they will come away with a better understanding of the nature of fascism. So Danny, do you want to add on to anything that you were saying earlier? Well, I would just like to mention that you know exactly what you had said. I'm hoping that we can have a good critical dialogue regarding both contemporary and past fascist 
uh, concepts of fascism, there is so much now to research that it's like drinking water from a fire hose. I mean, it's almost, uh, it, it's incredible to assemble. It, it ta it'll take teams and it'll take years if it can be done at all, because the fascists are so far ahead. They've made such inroads. Uh, the other thing I'd like to mention is my goal for this show is, is I am a public interest attorney, or at least I was when there was an interest in the public. Um, I don't practice anymore. But my goal for this show is to make an argument and a claim. And that is that there is now an organized global international fascist movement gaining increasing power daily that it, and that its epicenter is the United States. And I also claim, as many others do, that this movement has been in the making since World, World War II. Hitler's globalization effort was really one of the first efforts in globalization, but it failed. And, but it, it is now much more powerful, and it's far more reaching, and it involves far more nation states around the world with possibly horrendous results. And so I hope to make this case to listeners, and I'll attempt to define each and every concept I possibly can, uh, like fascism that you mentioned that we need to define. I'll make various assumptions in the show, so I'm going to boil them down to a, 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 just one or two right away. One is that there is a current improvement towards fascism international. And the other is that that rhetoric uh, of pro-nationals pro is the first step toward international justice. So what is going on in Hungary right now has everything to do with an alliance, as we'll see, that is being put together uh, 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 across the world. Uh, so, uh, and I agree with Ross absolutely that this fascism that is taking place right now is a theocratic fascism. It's based on the Christian West, the notion of the Christian West, by, by, by fascists. And as evidence, I, I, I hope you give enough evidence to the assumptions. And in terms of information, we've got to look at history to understand the, the current moment or, or without a historical lens, we're left with a, a simply reality, which can't be made sense of. And uh, I'll offer conclusions that the reader can, uh, the listener can agree or disagree. And of course, the consequences of believing what I say, if one accepts my argument, is that we've got to do something, that something must be done. Um, and I'm coming from multiple points of view, but I'm coming specifically from my own point of view, one that I've assembled uh, throughout my life. Uh, so uh, if people disagree with it, I certainly understand. Um, so with that said, I just wish to just capitalize on something that you said, Stephen, just for a moment, and that Russ had mentioned when, earlier, and then I'll give up the microphone. There is a very important book that readers may be interested in. It's called Facts and Fascism. It was written in 1942 by George Seldes, who is undoubtedly, in my mind, even bigger than I, I, I have stone, uh, the most important journalist in America in the 21st century. Uh, and this book here is, is a book that speaks exactly as to exactly how Hitler was financed exactly how Mussolini was financed. And obviously I'm not going to read the book, but there, he opens the book with chapter one. And I just want to mention something because it, it has to do with your show, Steve, and the good work you do and what Russ had mentioned. He says, and I quote, the time will come. And again, this is written in 1942. The time will come when people will not believe it was possible to mobilize 10,800,000 Americans to fight fascism and not tell them the truth about the enemy. 
And yet this is exactly what happened in our country in the global war. The Office of Information published millions of words, thousands of pamphlets, tons of writing. I'm, 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 I'm not quoting them specifically, but they never mentioned what fascism was or the men and women in uniform, what, what, what fascism meant, who was behind the political and military movements generally known as fascism, who paid for Germany, Italy, Japan, Spain, and other nations. And when it became to relating foreign fascism with Native American fascism, fascism, total conspiracy of silence by the Office of War and Information. Okay. Outside of a few books, a few pamphlets, nothing. The Saturday Evening Post, for example, ran articles lauding Mussolini and his notable backers in all the lands. And the Hearst Papers, they published from 34 signed propaganda articles from Goebbels, Goering, and Nazis. Okay, now they call them names, but then they were all behind them. And we can't be, must not be fooled, he says, into believing that American fascism consists of a few persons, some crackpots, some mentally perverted, a few criminals who are in jail at present, or some people that are being indicted for sedition. These are lunatic fringes of fascism, and they are also the small fry, the unimportant figureheads, just as Hitler was before the big money in Germany decided to set him up in business. Now he closes, and I will too. He says, I, he, he speaks, he says, the real fascists of America are never named in the commercial press. They're never named, for example, the DuPonts, the Fords, the Hearst, the Melvins, the Rockefeller empires, who moved billions of dollars for Nazi Germany and all the fascists. He says, I call these elements fascists. You may not like the names. You may not like the label. You may want to substitute Tories or economic royalists or vested interests or flag-waving anti-American Americans, but they are down-to-earth fascists. And their main object, object is to end civil liberties of the nation, to destroy labor unions and the free press and make more money at the expense of the slave nation. And he goes on and, and continues to mention, nobody, we fought Hitler and we beat Hitler, but we did not beat fascists. Very well said, Danny. Uh, Russ, did you have anything to add? Yeah, I, I think uh, uh, Charles Hyam's uh, trading with the enemy added to the, this discussion uh, by talking about the role of uh, the uh, of finance capital and industrial capital in the United States. Uh, the Rockefeller, uh, Chase Bank, uh, Standard Oil complexes, uh, uh, IBM, General Motors, Ford Motor Company, uh, IT&T, all these, and the role they played throughout World War II, aiding Nazi Germany. And this is something, you know, I mean, the, 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 uh, this was foretold uh, in the 20s and 30s when they were openly, openly expressed their uh, fidelity and alliance with Adolf Hitler uh, and got awards. I mean, the chancellor, uh, uh, I'm trying to remember, what do you call it? Uh, uh, an, uh, an adjutant of, uh, of uh, the Hitler regime came to Dearborn, Michigan uh, 
and gave the highest award uh, Germany had to offer to Henry Ford. Uh, Henry Ford was the only American praised in Mein Kampf. Um, and there were very few people praised in Mein Kampf. So how, how, they, but how they operated during the war is a story that is even less well known. And I think it shows just the absolute determination that, uh, that these elements had in imposing a fascist order in the world. They wanted to see the Soviet Union destroyed. They wanted to see the Roosevelt administration uh, smashed. They wanted to see the labor movement in Detroit, in, in, in the country destroyed. And they wanted to put people, as Danny properly said, they wanted to put people in basically a slave relationship to capital. Um, and uh, all the elements of racism that are normally conceived with people of that mindset were present in the people who were doing this. They, they were holding meetings in Europe. Uh, one of the top executives of General Motors was holding meetings in Europe with Goring and with uh, uh, Schacht, Hallmar Schacht, the, the finance guy, and, uh, and even contacts with Hitler himself during World War II. And, um, you know, they, the auto companies were building um, uh, aircraft and trucks and vehicles for the German army during World War II on the Western Front in France. This, this, this story is so enormous, you know, so enormous in its uh, horror and its terror that, um, you know, uh, one sometimes uh, has to be thankful for people you might not normally embrace for the fact that they at least were on the right side in World War II, you know? Um, and uh, even politicians that were on the pay of the Nazis, uh, the uh, uh, Burton Wheeler out of Montana, if I remember his name correctly, and some others, you know, these folks were just uh, paid agents of, of the Nazi regime. And uh, so uh, uh, I think, I think, Ultimately, you know, and, and I, I, don't, I don't think we have any disagreement on this, but ultimately you have to look at where Wall Street stands in relationship to these movements because they don't, they don't survive and fund it. I, you know, um, Hyam's book says that every, um, every industry in Germany based on a protocol that was established by their, uh, by their, uh, business councils uh, paid to the Nazi party one half of 1% of the size of their payroll. And that included uh, General Motors Opel uh, division that included Ford Motors units. And, uh, and then it got extended to when they occupied France, the factories that were there, they, they all paid the Nazi party in the 20s. It wasn't after they took power. They were doing it in the 20s to build the party. This was organized by the Krupp uh, armaments uh, people. And uh, I think there was another one. Uh, I don't know if it's this and steel, but you know, the, the Rurlod group is the one that uh, brought this into being, but it applied to everybody. And so the United States, the U.S. industry was paying 
to finance the buildup of the Nazi party in the 1920s. Well, let me yeah. ask you. And this is how, you see, it's not because, yeah, go ahead, Steve. Uh, well, let me ask you both about uh, a particular uh, body that uh, we'll probably get into later. Uh, I'm curious because it played such a crucial role in setting up the John Birch Society and uh, founding the spiritual mobilization movement and uh, participating in those national military industrial uh, conferences that the American Security Council was involved in. And that uh, body is the National Association of Manufacturers, or NAM. Uh, it's still around to this day. It still wields a tremendous amount of power. I think it was found Founded in 1904, yes. if I remember correctly. Um, it's a big player and it's almost never talked about. Uh, would you guys describe it as being a part of this milieu? Danny, Russ, do you want to, Danny, do you want to start? Yes. Well, certainly I, I, I do want to start. And I, again, I'm trying to refer here to Seldis' book, who has a complete chapter on NAM and exactly how they funded Hitler. And exactly uh, how they funded uh, 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 Hitler's organs, uh, because if, if the, the, the chapter is called "Nam Mouth Organ uh, of, of, of Hitler." But I mean, the, the National American uh, manufacturers are one of the biggest pro forces of business, or they were the biggest industrialists at that time, but they still are big. Um, the biggest industrialists at the time was the National Association of Manufacturers. And what, of course, they hated most of anything were trade unions and uh, having to pay a decent wage and uh, having to uh, 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 accede to anything uh, that, that labor wanted from them. So NAM, of course, uh, began to build fascism abroad, exactly as Russ has said, during the 1920s. Um, and they did it through so many front organizations that your, your listeners would go crazy listening to them. But um, here's a letter from Lewis, who was a head of NAM, who says, I'm totally sympathetic and, and completely opposed to current labor policies. I fought them tooth and nail. On the 40-hour week issue, I fought them tooth and nail. And then on August 31st, uh, 1920, he said, I know very well what fascism is, and I disapprove of it 100%. I'm not sure, aware that there is fascism in America at this moment. I am, of course, well aware that Hitler's Nazism was subsidized. Well, of course, but what Mr. Lewis doesn't uh, say is that the Chamber of Commerce and NAM, of course, were the ones that subsidized him. And this all came out in what was called the La Follette Committee that was held in the early part of last century, uh, where it was uh, noted that General Motors, the DuPonts, NAM, all of them were organized under NAM. NAM served as the umbrella organization. Okay, so uh, when, 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 when speaking about NAM, and now what we, I think the transition that we speak about is from an industrialized America to now what we can call a, a digitalized, revolutionized America. And instead of NAM, we have Silicon Valley. And it's Silicon Valley now that is subsidizing fascists, like Palantir and a number of its subsidiaries, including uh, 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 Israeli subsidiary uh, tech companies, which we will talk about later when we speak about Borman money. But um, NAM was a big player. It is never talked about. It never will be talked about. Most people don't even know it exists. But in the 1900s, it was the leading industrial organization that existed in the United States and one of the leaders in organizing the money for Hitler. And if I can, Stephen, just take a moment 
I don't know for listeners to know that uh, that we are on the hundredth anniversary of fascism. Nineteen twenty-two fascism was founded. The word was founded. It comes from fascis. If you look at the back of a mercury dime, you'll see a bundle of sticks held together with a hatchet. And that's where the word comes from. Well, it was also in 1920 or 21 that William uh, Wild Bill Donovan met uh, for uh, 1923. Wild Bill Donovan, who was later with the OSS, met with Hitler for breakfast in 1923, months before the beer push. So one would want to ask himself, what is Wild? Who is he working for? Why is he there? Well, the answer really comes in with Sullivan and Cromwell and Dulles and people of this nature. And I don't want to go on a rant here, but it's important to note that Ford in the 1920s was not only the conduit of money for Hitler, one of the major, okay, but he had three conduits that he used. One was the white, a white Russian czarist community in, in the United States and in Europe, okay, assisted by the Romanov family. The other conduit for money that he used to get the money into Nazi Germany was his, in 1922, he had a guy by the name of Fuzzy Warren Anderson, who was an agent for Ford, Germany. Ford had built a factory in Cologne, in Germany, and they had a man, well, a Warren Anderson. He became a conduit for transfer of funds to Nazi Germany. And interestingly, the third, the son and daughter, son, son, son-in-law, and the daughter of Richard Wagner, uh, the composer, who of course uh, was associated with fascism. But the, the, son, the, the, the daughter and the son-in-law came to the United States with Nazis in the 20s, asking for money, asking for funds. In fact, they had dinner with Henry Ford in 1922 when they came. So, we know we can trace through. I mean, and there's so much more that I don't. I don't want to, you know, monopolize the conversation. But there's another aspect of Ford that's important. That, that it's, he was really the initial funder and the big man behind Hill, and that is the ideological aspect. My Kampf, there are parts of it that are that people think are plagiarized by Ford's first book, which was the International Jew. That, he, uh, that he, he, he first wrote in columns of the Dearborn, uh, Michigan uh, newsletter that he put out. But it copied directly from my, my comp, comp, copied directly from the book. I mean, the passages copied directly from the book. And remember, the book was written in the early 20s. So and Ford's effect on the youth in Germany was huge because the youth in Germany, and we'll talk more about this, this is after Versailles and reparations and my God, the, the country was on its knees. They had nowhere to go. They were reading Ford's work as well. It was all being sent to Germany. And in fact, it was uh, uh, a retitle, I think. Uh, uh, I can't forget the, the title that was retitled. Um, in fact, 1923, Hitler sent out a communique saying, well, Ford was, gonna, was thinking of running for president in 1923. So Hitler sent out a communique said, I wish I could send my my uh, my shock troops to Chicago to help him. That's how close they were. So major propaganda and a legitimization for Nazism came from the ideological underpinnings of Ford, which of course came from eugenics, and we can talk more about that. Or um, you're right, Russ. He was awarded the uh, uh, the prestigious 
award from uh, Hitler's Germany. He was only one of four people that had the award, uh, Hitler being the other. And um, uh, no, Mussolini, excuse me, being the other at the same honor. And of course, the reparations, and, and, and we'll have to, I'll stop at this point, but we're going to need to talk about uh, the Versailles Treaty and the reparations and how that really led uh, the industrialists to back him. Absolutely. And uh, a quick note to uh, point out, um, one of the guys who's actually believed to have been the principal author of the International Jew was a guy named uh, William J. Cameron, who was also the editor of the Dearborn Independent uh, during some of the uh, peak years of Ford's public anti-Semiticism. And uh, Cameron is an interesting guy on a lot of levels. Uh, on the one hand, he had connections to uh, one of the white Russians uh, you were alluding to, Danny, who was probably one of Ford's funding conduits to the Nazi party. And that was the enigmatic figure of Boris Brazel, uh, a favorite subject of Richard B. Spence, who at some point I'm going to have on to do an epic show on Brazel. Uh, but Brazel is also interestingly, uh, possibly one of the candidates who had brought um, the Protocols of the Learned Elders of Zion to Henry Ford. Uh, and also interesting about uh, Brazel and this whole sort of milieu with Cameron. Cameron uh, was a proponent of uh, British Israeliism and is generally considered to be one of the uh, founders of what became known as Christian identity theology, uh, which is a toxic uh, cosmology that essentially uh, describes white people as the true Jews of the Bible and um, non-white people as subhuman demonic beings and that type of thing. Uh, so the whole connection with Brazel was interesting in that regard because he also appears to have had some contacts to the infamous Thule Society uh, in Germany. Uh, there's a lot of nonsense uh, online about what the Thule Society believed in, but uh, at the core of their philosophy was a concept known as Ariosophy, uh, which was again uh, kind of an offshoot of Theosophy, but it was almost a, a quasi-Gnostic uh, ideology which was along similar concepts. Uh, you know, white people were again a divine race. Um, everybody else was this sort of demonic being that had to be resisted. And it does make one wonder if this was possibly a key transference point for what became Christian identity theology, uh, which is sadly still with us today and uh, has uh, provided the fuel for a rather rampant uh, terror network domestically in the United States uh, for many years now. Um, yeah, there's a great book, I believe it's called America's Secret Jihad by Stuart Wexler that gets into the uh, uh, rather extensive mm -hmm. acts of domestic terrorism linked to Christian identity theology. Uh, but anyway, let us get into the historic yes. development of uh, fascism in Italy. So, Danny, do you want to break this down for us? Well, uh, 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 let me let me let me start by by doing this, and then and then and, and then you can stop me if, if 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 I wanted to find fascism. I think it's 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 first of all, it's it's difficult to define. Now, it depends on your approach, on one's point of view. Um, and I'm going to save my upfront bias. I'm a libertarian socialist, distinguished from a market anarchist or libertarian. So my analysis is economic, historical, dialectical. And I use this approach 
that incorporates uh, uh, in libertarian, what I mean by libertarian socialism, socialism that incorporates cultural revolution, women's children's liberation, transformation of daily life, etc. So defining fascism is really the, the, it, a very difficult thing to do. Um, I would say that, that from my point of view, fascism is, 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 is understood as having its like backbone in the political block or alliance between monopoly finance capital and the lower middle stratum class or what we call the petty bourgeoisie. Uh, the, you can see this in Trump. This is basically Trump's following. And the radical right has also historically drawn strength from these rural sectors, established regions, pensioners, sectors of the military. Um, but fascism, even though it, it's marginal in all capitalist societies, it, it never arises in full force on its own. It's only able to consolidate itself when it's subsidized. And therefore, it's really fascism is a movement of a ruined petty bourgeoisie mobilized by a corporate elite against the working class to stave off revolution from below. And the resurgence, as I see, of fascist forces today is the outcome of a conspiracy of the ruling class aware that their agenda of austerity, social inequality, and war has no mass support. And so, uh, I mean, in the 1920s and 30s, um, it was pointed out by some people to try to define fascism, that it was a threat emanating from mass migration from Eastern Europe, particularly Poland. And so then you had a xenophobic view of fascism. Uh, other theorists have, have defined it as a mass basis of the petty bourgeoisie or, or lower bourgeoisie, as I mentioned before. Um, what happens is the lower middle class gets fearful of falling into the great unwashed, you know, poverty-stricken working class. And at the same time, they're really suspicious of all these upper middle class liberal democratic types up against them. Okay, so they're kind of caught in the middle. In other words, the centers collapsed, is what I'm saying. So there's the broad communities to fascist genres movement stretching all through history. And we have a white supremacy back, back to slavery. And, 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 but Trump's militant political base was about 25, 30% of the electorate did make over 75 grand a year. And it kind of goes with my definition, I think, of fascist. Now, I don't have the only definition. Uh, other people call it neo-fascism. I don't like neo. I don't like alt. I don't like right. I don't like left. I'm going to refer to this as fascist. And, 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 and it's, it's basically uh, right now everywhere. It's in Europe, it's in Vox and Golden Dawn in Spain, in Spain, it's in Greece, it's in the AFD in Germany, it's in France, Finland, so et cetera, et cetera. So in attempting to understand what fascism is, I think really one has to look at what capitalism is all about. And I think you see the growth of fascism everywhere you see the collapse of capitalism. And I think that was traditionally the last century as well, especially in 1929. Now we have 2008. Now perhaps we have a neoliberal fascism, if you want to call it that. A different kind of fascism. 
But the period after the First World War really represented somewhat of a period of prosperity until there was an overaccumulation of capital, meaning that capitalists had too much capital and they couldn't sell it. And this is in the 20s is when the credit system evolved. People would buy things on the credit system. They had a name for it. I just escapes me right now. On consignment, you buy things on consignment. Uh, people ran out of money. The capital was over accumulated, and um, uh, against this backdrop, where was the working class to go? Well, there were strong socialist movements at the time, but of course they had to all be wiped out, and they were all basically all wiped out by the fascists. So if, if we're going to look at the growth of, of, of fascism, for example, in Italy, I th in the 20s, I think we have to understand it is the failure of both capitalism and understanding of the Versailles treaties and the role of reparations. Because the reparations themselves, first of all, the money was loaned. Well, you, just briefly, I, I, Stephen, and I'll give you the floor and bust the floor. It was in 1891 or 19, you can even take it to 1914, when, 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 when Cecil Rhodes put together his Milner Group. And the Milner Group uh, uh, was of the opinion, because Germany was the growth, the, Germany in the, 18, in the late 1800s was the most industrialized country in the world, far surpassed uh, in England. And England was scared of it. And so they wanted to attack Germany. But they realized that they couldn't get away with it. Okay, so they had to engineer a war. And in order to engineer a war, they had to make sure that the Americans were involved. In order to get the Americans, they couldn't beat them by themselves. In order to get the Americans involved, they had to go through a whole bunch of shenanigans. And here we get into Bern Edward Bernays and how the war against Germany was sold to the American people, the babies on bayonets, which might remind people of the incubated children in, 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 in Kuwait. Uh, all of this was propaganda. And all of this was created on the part of the, 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 the uh, Wilson administration, who was dominated by the Milner Group, the Anglophiles of England, to, and the sinking of the Lusitania, but that didn't, that, all of that didn't add up because there was a huge German population in the United States and they didn't want to go to war with their own country. And so, so many uh, psyops and false flags had to be done to eventually pull America into war. Remember, Roosevelt, Wilson got elected in, in 1912, uh, uh, on uh, 1916, on no war. He re-elected, no war. We will never go to war. We will never go to war. By 1917, he was you know, putting U.S. troops into the war. So a lot had to happen for that to happen. Well, who financed the war? Well, Sullivan and Cromwell were the lawyers, of course. The financiers were the DuPonts, the Rockefellers, the super rich, the industrialists. Uh, they financed uh, in the Italian war. I mentioned someone I mentioned in the Seldes book. But this was financed. They couldn't pay reparations. Italy, Germany, none of them could pay reparations. So who financed the reparations? The same people that financed the war. So you had a finance war up in the beginning. Then when the war was lost, 
all these countries had to borrow money to pay back the people that started the war, which were a handful of corporations and individuals, and you had a recipe for disaster. And then that brought us up into these, you know, these what these these various uh, uh, things that attempted to be done. I, in the 1920s, you had uh, the Dawes Act, for example. Uh, the Dawes Act was an attempt to try to get these uh, uh, governments to pay their debts. Uh, but the Dawes Act, but who was Dawes? Uh, and I'm, you know, I'm trying to get to my point. The, the Dawes Act was basically, the, in 1923, the Dawes, well, who is, first of all, let me identify who Dawes is. Dawes was the vice president under Coolidge. But he quit and he turned to private business and banking. And he organized the Central Trust Company of Illinois. So during World War I, he's the head of the procurement for the American Expeditionary Forces of France. So he's, he's helping to finance the war, okay? In 1923, it, it, it Dawes is, is appointed by the Allied Repar Reparations Commission, come up with a solution to, to get Germany to pay its, uh, its, its billions of dollars, they said it owed in reparations from investors. So they were profiting twice. Right? Well, the Dawes plan saved Europe for a little bit because it pumped money, some capital into the economy, but it didn't solve the problem of failing capitalism. And as a result, we had the Young Plan. And then the Young Plan happens after the First World War. They say, they say Germany owes $31 billion in those days. There's absolutely no way they can pay. So the reparations are all financed, and they're all financed by the Rockefellers. The United States Debt War Commission is set up by the United States. The Dawes Plan fails. And, and Berlin campaign is slow. So what happens? Well, J.P. Morgan floats the loans for the U.S. market. And over the next four years, U.S. banks continue to lend Germany enough money just to pay the VIG. They couldn't even pay the, the balance just to pay the VIG. So they're profiting twice. And what happens? Dawes gets a peace prize for it, of course. Well, his plan failed, so they picked Owen Young, and, 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 uh, and he comes on to, to, in 1920, 1920s, and he tries to, to, to get the, the Germany to pay its, its reparations. Uh, it's known as the Young Plan. Uh, what is Young known for? He started RCA. He started as a subsidiary of General Electric. General Electric became the big player in the Reich in Germany, but he started in 1919. He became the first chairman. And of course, RCA went on to become, you know, huge in radio. It was 1928 when radio was supposedly invented for the average household. So they formed all these committees and they kind of loosened a bit. And what happened, what comes out of it is the Bank of International Settlements. And I think, Stephen, this is why I'm going to stop because I think your knowledge of the Bank of International Settlements fills in a lot of holes. Okay. Well, Steve, um, on what is fascism? Uh, yeah, yeah. Do you have anything to add, Russ? I, <clears throat> yeah, I want to throw in on that. Um, basically, uh, uh, you know, I, I, everything has its antecedents, as we know. Some of them, those antecedents go 
that not only decades but centuries back. But formatively, I think uh, you know for uh, trying to discern you know uh, what's distinct and new that causes that term to uh, be created and evolve. Uh, we have to look start at 1919, uh, really. Well, 1917. Uh, the World War is still on. Uh, Europe is in uh, uh, major crises. Uh, you know, um, you know, you have uh, war, war created plagues. You have uh, massive death. You have massive insanity of, uh, you know, of. Uh, you know, years of trench warfare, and um, and so uh, out of this uh, crisis and during this crisis, um, for Western Europe, uh, you have the uh, Russian Revolution in of nineteen seventeen, and it it really shakes up the uh, aristocracy. You know, the, the ruling classes of uh, whether the whether it's the kings, the monarch, and the industrialists, you know, that coexist as a, a ruling class in each of these countries. And the, uh, you know, the, what it evolved is various kind, uh, versions of uh, socialism in these European countries uh, was struck by the power of what was possible. Uh, <clears throat> and uh, uh, to accelerate the crisis in Germany, uh, the German Communist Party tried to do the same thing in Germany, uh, based out of Bavaria, and they took power for a while, and they executed some of the uh, some of the uh, aristocratic elite. Yeah, it was and, like what the Thurin uh, Taxes family was. Specifically, yeah, very very clear. Yes, and so. Uh, when that uprising was finally suppressed, it it uh, created a uh, a uh, shockwave in, in the mindset uh, of the uh, German elites uh, from the um, the officer class that com comes out of the aristocracy, uh, the, you know the monarchy, you know the Hohenzollerns and so forth, and in uh, uh, 1919, uh, coming out of the uh, the uh, Russian Revolution, is the creation of a third international, which was specifically identified uh, with the uh, Russian Revolution and uh, creation of communist parties to further what had happened in 1917, and that there were uh, there were large parties created in Italy and uh, France and other parts of Europe uh, of various sizes. Um, you know, they split the socialist uh, movement by forming a communist, but some parts of the socialist movement remain, you know, uh, socialist and would be later called democratic socialists and so forth. And, but what, whether they were, what version of socialism they were was secondary to elites that didn't want anything other than the uh, 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 complete and utter unchallenged control of the political economy of the universe that they lived in. And 
So in 1919, in, uh, in Italy, which had always focused on city-state development, was uh, late to organize as a national entity called Italy. Uh, it was a fairly recent development in 1919. Then uh, there was the, the manufacturer, the large-scale industrialists formed a, an associ national association, what we would call the equivalent of a national association of manufacturers. Mm -hmm. And they, uh, they quickly sized, sized up the political landscape and saw, you know, um, you know the uh, anti-socialists, uh, despite Mussolini's uh, background in, with one of the socialist parties, uh, saw, you know, in the March in Fume and uh, other actions. And then finally, the March on Rome. Um, and they began backing uh, the fascist party. Uh, and basically, uh, you had the same, you know, in the, the, the German, uh, as we talked about earlier, uh, uh, the German industrialists uh, did the, the same thing when they said, okay, we, we're putting our money on the uh, German National Socialist Workers Party. Uh, and uh, they made their bets and they financed it early and helped bring, bring it to power. Uh, because of uh, because of the settlement of World War One, uh, they couldn't immediately introduce the Nazi Party into power, but they had to overcome the uh, Weimar regime first. But they but they want they didn't want the pretenses of parliamentary democracy or uh, any parliamentary form. You know they they wanted a um, uh, a party that would uh, that they could uh, would dictate the terms of existence of the uh, of the social world and their terms alone, and uh, bring any measure, uh, including oppression and terror, to anybody who objected or challenged their power. And so, I, I think what makes fascism distinct is the uh, the conscious, intentional. Uh, unity of capital, and this doesn't mean every capitalist was part of it. Of course not. Uh, that never does happen in the world. But the consensus of capital to uh, uh, create a, a form of dictation of national life and to employ terror against its opponents in order to achieve its aims. And so fascism brought. Uh, dictatorial rule, but it also in, uh, had as its uh, power component uh, oppressive instruments of power, including organized militia-like terror. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, the Italian squadristi murdered um, murdered agrarian cooperative leaders. Uh, mm -hmm. And not just Socialist Party or Communist Party folk, but anybody who was trying to work a system outside the capitalist consensus was was bloodied and murdered. And the Squadriste conducted these campaigns over the period of years. So the terror component is part of the concept of dictatorship and uh, that's what makes it in, in alliance with capital. That's what makes it, those three elements are what 
makes fascism fascism to me. And Russ, I think that's um, that's a very. Well, you gave a great um, historical context. If I can interject there, I think. Go ahead, Stephen. I'm sorry. Oh, zero fun. You're fine. But yeah, I think that's a great point, Russ, because I think the paramilitary aspect of uh, fascism is usually glossed over as well. Uh, but getting back to like what you were saying with Bavaria, um, the way that a lot of the aristocracy and the industrials uh, dealt with the communist takeover of the city was to raise, uh, you know, what were known as free corps. And these were essentially private militias uh, that were staffed mm. with officers um, from the German army that had largely just been disbanded uh, in the aftermath of World War One, And in many cases, a lot of, uh, you know, for the foot soldiers, younger people, uh, usually around the ages of 16 to 18, who in many cases were a little too young to have actually fought in the First World War and uh, were sorely disappointed uh, by their inability to chase glory or something to that effect. Um, and when they retook Bavaria, I mean, it was brutal. Um, if I'm not mistaken, I think they had at one point had even taken, you know, I mean, almost all of the communists or suspected communists out of their homes and started shooting them in the streets, literally. Um, it very much traumatized That's the right. city. So, and I mean, these free corps sprang up all over Germany. Um, and this was, you know, again, I have to emphasize, this was a major component of the terror that Russ was alluding to. I mean, you basically had these private armies all over the German uh, nation during the Wehmer years uh, that were comprised of a lot of these veterans of the First World War and a lot of the youth. And uh, it really kind of laid the foundation for what became the Brown Shirt Movement. And at one point, I mean, they had even dispatched a lot of these free corps uh, to the eastern, to the east, uh, where they were fighting alongside a lot of the white Russians uh, against the Bolsheviks to try to retake uh, certain areas of Russia or the former Russian uh, empire and that type of thing. So there is a lot of stuff going on with these groups that's mm -hmm. never really talked about. And, um, you know, again, the use of private troops uh, by aristocracy, you know, was not a new thing, uh, but it had really been on the decline since the peace of uh, Westphalia, I believe it was, um, gosh, in the early 17th, early to mid 17th century. And that had really put the control under of uh, military forces under state control. And, uh, you know, this had been gradually, this has been gradually eroded, I think, over the course of the 20th century and certainly in the 21st century. But I mean, I think you sort of see the foundation of this to some extent in Wehmer and in Italy with this use of these, uh, in the case of the Free Corps, especially these very professional, you know, basically private armies uh, that were outside of any real formal state control. Mm -hmm. Yes, they're they're free the free corps and again, it, it, Steve, you make a great point, and it, it goes to the issue that the free corps, as Russ said, were made up of mostly veterans, yes. and so um, these are displaced, dislocated people that don't really have a roof over their head and no pot to piss in, and they don't have any jobs. And this very much resembles the red states. Yes. It's the same kind of thing dispossessed, dislocated people that have no future under existing capitalism, and they will turn toward the right. And a lot of that, of course, has to do with Weimar. But I'd just like to take a minute because Rush, Rush brought us back to the point, and I thank you, Russ, what is fascism? And if you do a Google search on fascism, you know, you're not going to find anything but lexical definitions. Uh, for one, a system of government marked by centralization of authority under a dictator, uh, with stringent controls. Oh, that's not very helpful. You know, if I, uh, Robert Paxton, an author, says a form of political behavior 
obsessive preoccupation with community decline, uh, mass-based party committed nas national militants, working on an easy but effective collaboration. Again, it's very verbiage. Another guy goes on to talk about the third way, which you're right in say it was the third way in 1919. Um, but uh, that is a form of social Darwinism. Uh, it, it, there's a number of, uh, uh, my general definition is, 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 a, is, a, is an assumption that is, that is basically like yours, Russ. And I think even though we may be getting ahead of ourselves, let me just say, some people use these words and I don't think they use them correctly. Fascism is not an autocracy. Autocracy is governed by a single person having unlimited power. It's a despotism. That's not fascism. Fascism is not monarchy. Okay? Right. It's not a country ruled by a monarch or a queen. And it's not plutocracy, which is a government by the wealthy. And it's not really um, oligarchic. Okay? Right. All right. of those have elements of fascism in them. But fascism is something very distinct to a failing capitalist system. And, and, and as we see yeah. capitalism failing worldwide, we're seeing the growth of fascism. And Steve, your, your point, you used the term a mass-based party. That's, that, that's something I should have you know, expressly said, because you're right. And all, and all those other autocracies and other variations, uh, what makes the fascist party distinct is its mass-based character. It, it, it's claimed to be a mass base out of which they organize their terror components. Um, and, you know, whereas traditional arist aristocratic means uh, don't want anything mass-based at all. <laughs> they, they want a serfdom, frankly, not, um, you know, but they have to rely on a mass-based uh, uh, terror party of the right to destroy the left and yeah but you mentioned something important when you mentioned Mussolini and you said uh, you know that of course that he unleashed a tremendous amount of terror uh, 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 on the rural populations he had to make a deal with the industrialists and he had to make a deal with the latifundas which means right. Uh, right okay and they, and they all had to pay a big they all had to pay two percent three percent just to do business with them um but 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 when we get to uh Hitler Okay, or let's just say socialism was a popular word from 1900s to, to the Russian Revolution, and no understanding can be done without the Russian Revolution. It was the first class-based revolution in the world. Right. And so when the Russian, Russian Revolution took place, some people were enamored with socialism, rightly or wrongly, right? So what, what these Mussolinis and Hitlers had to do is they had to incorporate the word socialism into their phraseology into their titles and then they had to make well make speeches like trump did okay the, for the working man so here's here's mussolini in an important interview after 1925 after he's met with the landowners and, and who were going to be his chief backers he comes out to the press and he says i love the working classes the supremacist ambition and the dearest hope of my life is been to steal see them better treated enjoying conditions of life worthy of the citizens of a great nation. The fascist government will devote all its efforts to the creation of an agrarian democracy based on principle of small ownership, et cetera, et cetera. So here we see that the word socialism is now put in. So you have national socialism and Italian national socialism 
and none of it has to do with socialism. It all has to do with capitalism. Yeah, so, yeah. It, socialism is only uh, a, a, a attempted uh, seductive recruiting concept, and exactly. and that's exactly how, that, because the crisis of the time they had to address that phenomenon. So especially during Weimar. Remember yeah. Weimar's government of power in 1919. And in 1933, it fails. We, I believe, in the United States of America, those of us who are Americans in the United States of America, we're in a Weimar moment right now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. We have we have a radical right that is a technocratic, theocratic fascist, and we have a radical right, okay, that is a primitive tribal fascist who don't know they're really being used. Okay, but it's all being organized by a global, international, industrial, cybernetic, uh, 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 technological fascism. They're just organizing them differently in different countries so that they will eventually come together to overthrow the EU. And as we'll speak at another time, replace, replace it with the intermarian, which is what they want. They want, mother, they want the mother Russian land. Yeah. Okay, from Russia all the way to the Atlantic Sea. Yeah. And, and they also are mixing theocratic Catholicism into this mix, especially in Hungary, when we take our world journey and begin to examine some of these countries more fully. But Hungary is the prototype for what's going on in America right now. Yeah. When you have a, uh, uh, a historically informed concept of what fascism is, it allows you to comprehend what's happened in the United States. Uh, in the Trump era, and then go back to the antecedents when when the cadre building started through Christian coalition, and and less well mentioned and not as well known, James Dobson and his community impact committees, which unlike the Christian coalition, they did not want to be public. The Christian, they had twelve hundred uh, political action committees called community impact committees operating out of uh, home churches that ran people for school board and so forth without ever calling the name. They, they used disguised names, you know, parents for better education, et cetera, et cetera. And right. they, they did a lot of cadre building and, and you know, and Dobson was, uh, was a dominionist theocrat. And he, you know, I, I think he was at least as important as Pat Robertson was in the, uh, in the formation of the so-called religious right. And, you know, I mean, this guy had 1,200 people on his staff, <laughs> you know, Pat Robertson didn't have anything like that. So, you know, these forces uh, are, are creating the base for what we've lived through through the Trump period here. So that, yeah, like, I'm sure we're going to get to that down the road, but that's why people need to take time to think about what, what you and I are talking about, the three of us are talking about for what fascism really is, because then you have the proper understanding of what we're living in at the moment. Now, all movements need their foundation miss. And uh, for the Nazi party, the Beer Hall Putsch is uh, a very significant one. Um, Danny, do you want to take us through the Beer Hall thing and why that was so crucial to the uh, early Nazi party? Well, you know, the beer hall push is kind of like the, the to me, uh, I, I don't know, did you say my name or did you say Russ? I'm sorry. You. you oh, did. okay. I was just going to mention the beer hall push reminds me in many ways of uh, the attack on the Capitol on, on January 6th. 
Right. Uh, uh, it's known as the Munich push as well. It's, it's got its German names and all that type of stuff. It was 1923 in Bavaria in November. And Hitler was wounded during the clash. Um, basically, they tried to take over the municipality. Now, again, this is where I get back to strategies for today. We better hang on to our municipal governments because that's what Hitler was after in Bavaria. And you're quite right, right Steve. It was bloody. Um, uh, uh, it brought Hitler's attention to Germans for the first time. It was the first time he generated front page headlines. And then he had a 24-day trial that went after that. And what did that do for him? Publicized him more. and gave him more time for a platform. Then he's guilty of treason and he's sent to Landsberg prison. Okay, where he only serves about, I don't know, two years. He meets Rudolf Hess there and stuff like that. He serves nine months. Then he's released. He's a hero. Okay. And he's redirected his focus toward obtaining power through legal means. Don't forget, Hitler was elected under Weimar Germany. He didn't, he wasn't a despot, he was elected. And so the, 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 the 19, but of course, the 93, all German push didn't work, but it sure gave uh, Hitler the notoriety that he sought. And who was behind that? The major media. And again, we cannot talk about fascism without talking about the major media, both platform media and other media, and how the major media, especially Bernays, look, Hitler learned what he, and, and, and Mussolini as well, they learned their marketing skills from Bernays, all right? They learned their, 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 their reparation and, 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 and monetary skills from the United States. They learned eugenics from the United States. I mean, the United States is where fascism really began. It didn't begin in Germany. It didn't begin in Italy. It began in the United States. If we define it the way I define it, as, as, as basically monopoly capitalism and fascism together, I, I define it the way that, that I think Mussolini would define it, which would be the uh, corporatism, that, that fascism is corporatism. And that if it indeed is corporatism, then that's what Mussolini did. He set up a fascist government where he's the head and all the bodies and the arms and the legs and the extremities that hang out are all private businesses. There is no Congress or no assemblies. There's no representatives. It's one big systematic ball of corruption. And everybody has to pay the vig to him and they have to also kick in for the national government to keep the armies going. I mean, we see it today. We see it today with Trump. Right. It, you know, uh, one of the other elements in, in, in that uh, uh, Munich period is that he, uh, Hitler, is introduced to this world as, uh, because he was recruited recruited uh, to be a military by military intelligence to be an operative in the movement and to be a spy and to report on uh, the, the national socialist movement to the generals. Um, and Schreier talks about this in the uh, uh, rise and fall of the Third Reich um, and others have as well. So um, he starts first as an operative and then uh, and then he gets it he gets his grounding, you know, he, uh, he comes in contact with the white Russians who like, you know, uh, 
happened with Henry Ford. The white Russians are the ones that introduced the concept of, uh, of the, the anti-Semitism from the protocols. They bring that right. from the czarist forgeries and introduce it to Hitler, and Hitler incorporates that in Landsberg prison, I guess. Um, and uh, and uh, <clears throat> and they put that uh, they put that out, and he he takes that new turn. But during that period of time, the army was uh, was funding uh, the Free Corps groups, and in some cases, arming them. And so the army plays an instrumental role. Of course, the army, the, the, especially the general officers, are a component of the arist uh, aristocracy. They're not doing this as a uh, standalone entity, but as reflecting their class interests. And, uh, and they see the, you know, they see the Free Corps. They know that the army was the one that told the Kaiser, we can't win this war, let's bring it to an end. But then when Kaiser does it, then they say the Kaiser and the uh, and at all backstabbed the army and the generals allowed that you know bad history to be used as propaganda to form a uh, a new state. I mean they're freaked out about the Russian Revolution, the 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 Munich uprisings, and they're looking for the uh, forces that they're going to arm and uh, take control of and get rid of the. Uh, the alien democracy elements uh, imposed by the victors of World War One, and they recruited Hitler from from the very beginning, and armed him and equipped him and funded him, and probably they're the ones that sprung him from jail. But you know, Hitler was one of the only was one of the only people at the time amongst other industrialists. Uh, to recognize that the, that the global structures created under this, quote, self-regulating market were falling apart and that bourgeois liberal democracy had no answer to, 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 to the plight of, of the nation of, of, of Germany. That's um, and and we, again, I go back to the Biden administration only because the Biden administration resents, represents bourgeois liberal democracy that is failing mm -hmm. and it's a Weimar moment in the United States the unfortunate part is there are no socialist movements there are no real movements to counter it we're not anywhere near or we can't even barely define the term let alone organize against it and that's one of the troubling aspects yep yep sign of the you're right on the other hand, the uh, right is definitely uh, very organized at this point. And, uh, you know, in reviewing the uh, Beer Hall Pooch, uh, you know, for the show, I mean, I was struck by the similarities that it really has in a lot of ways to January 6th, as you were alluding to, Danny. Um, you know, I think there was even at the time in 1923, some attempts to dismiss it as a kind of a buffoonish, you know, spectacle uh, more than anything, not unlike what you see now with January 6th. Right. Um, but, you know, I think really the myth was more important. And I mean, I think you're already starting to see that emerging around January 6th as well. And I mean, certainly, you know, I mean, if somebody like Stuart Rhodes or what have you does ultimately end up serving, you know, a couple of months or whatever for it. Uh, well, who knows, you know, um, but I mean, how do you guys see the uh, January 6th playing out? Do you think that that's possibly a parallel there? Go ahead, Russ. These guys are being let off with practically no consequences whatsoever, you know, and uh, 
you know, you can't say that Trump is, uh, you know, it's, it's the, uh, well, it's the, it's the uh, judicial system that was put in by Trump, you know, half, half, half of the judges in the country were put in by Trump, right? <laughs> uh, and, you know, yeah, you know, three, one third of the Supreme Court, you know, the Court of Appeals, the district judges, and the judicial system is, is not, not, and, you know, maybe I, I'm being a little unfair because maybe the prosecution prosecutors are not pushing for the hard sentences that these people, you know, should get, you know, uh, you know, I mean, is we all know if there had been a left wing movement doing that, those guys would be fake. Look at uh, they'd be facing life in prison, you know. You, well, you know, you make, you, you're absolutely right. I mean, one guy just the other day got a three month sentence. Yeah, um, yeah. by a judge who actually was somewhat sympathetic to him. This is, this is what went on after, this is what went on at the end of World War II. All right, the people that were brought to Nuremberg and that were hung in Nuremberg were not Hamish not shocked and they weren't, you know, the, the major the financiers of fascism. Tucson was never brought to Nuremberg. Uh, I mean, I, you know, so at Nuremberg, it, 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 it it was supposed to seal the record and the denazification was, and it was all supposed to be over. And we're supposed to go to leave it to Beaver and live a happy life. Well, obviously it not only didn't work out that way, it was not supposed to work out that way as we'll get into in prior shows because the Nazis had to be imported into the United States in order to, to fight socialism, communism here in the twenties and thirties as well. Well, so, um, but I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I think yeah. that your statement is exactly yeah. Well, they had to import them because they couldn't resettle all the uh, the Hungarian Arrow Cross, the Romanian Iron Guard, the, uh, the Ukrainians, the Croatian Ustashi at all, uh, the Bulgarian Legion. They couldn't resettle them all in Germany. They had to find a place to put them because they couldn't go back to their home countries. They'd be they'd be killed. And I think so, wasn't Michigan um, a popular destination they, for them actually? It, it, all the major cities, Chicago, uh, uh, Detroit area, and uh, in, in Michigan, like uh, the Romanian Iron Guard leader, uh, uh, I'm blanking on his name at the moment, uh, was uh, settled in Grass Lake, Michigan. He was put over the, uh, there was a Romanian Orthodox church for immigrants in the United States. And it was headquartered in Grass Lake, Michigan, about an hour west of Detroit. And um, with the blessing of uh, federal uh, federal authorities, uh, the uh, Romanian uh, uh, Iron Guard element that was recruited into the United States uh, marched in there and took over the uh, took over the uh, the the. Romanian Orthodox Church. I mean, just uh, amazing. You know, uh, I, I'm uh, Trifa. It, yeah, Valerian Trifa was the uh, guy who had been a theology student and uh, uh, participated in uh, mass murder, organized the youth uh, element of the Iron Guard in, to do uh, mass murder in Bucharest, you know, and uh, they hung Jews by meat hooks and thousands thousands of mass murder so eventually in uh i think the 1980s he was deported uh back to somewhere and he lived the rest of his life outside the united states 
but he, he was put in power by by the U.S. government, and uh, there is nothing that could be done to un undo that by anybody. Uh, and you know, um, and then he, the the churches became uh, populated with Iron Guard priests. You know, so they did these kinds of little takeovers in the U.S. But you know, they were challenged to they they wanted to keep these elements intact because I think they foresaw the possibility as in Hungary in 1956, where they were going to overthrow the ruling communist parties of those countries and bring a new regime in, then they would have taken the Valerian Trifa network and put them back into Hungary or, or back into Romania. Uh, same with the Iron Guard, you know, I mean, uh, the Arrow Cross in Hungary. They, they, they were putting them on standby status and yeah, throughout yeah. the Western Hemisphere until they could retake it. And they thought they were going to retake Hungary in 56. Didn't happen. Uh, so, um, yeah, that's, uh, that's their story. But the, um, uh, the ones I think that were executed were the ones that didn't want to work with the, work with the West. You know, oh, we're, we're not going to work with you. You, you, just, you destroyed our country. Uh, fuck you, you know. And excuse me, this is maybe oh, I shouldn't fine, say that that way, but I think that's what they said. Um, but they uh, they said, uh, and so the the, un, the unrepentant Nazis were the ones executed. The Reinhard Galens uh, and uh, uh, people involved in specifically in concentration camp mass murder, as long as they were were willing to be compliant with the United States to some degree, uh, they were not executed. Not only were they not executed, and what really was a show trial. Well, not only were they not executed, they were brought back. They were brought into the United States and given money and positions of power. Well, they 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 were they were they created the the post war government. Reinhard Galen, as you know, set up the intelligence agency for uh, the post war German uh, regime, the what would become the BND. Uh, and set up the spy networks. Uh, and, you know, that story has been told in several books. And, you know, he, he, ran, uh, he ran the uh, intelligence operations for, in the uh, Eastern Front. Uh, so he had, he, and he was the one who oversaw all the, uh, the SS groups, the Iron Guard, the Bulgarian Legion, the, all of them. And so he knew the, all those networks he had all, all the capacity. He had a lot, huge amount of raw intelligence on the uh, Soviet Union, and uh, and he, Alan Dulles agreed agreed to put him in charge of setting up and and then and then Reinhard Galen will say, okay, well I need this guy out of prison, I need that guy out of prison. Okay, 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 no problem. And they just made the deal, and uh, Nuremberg was the thing of the past. It created the cover and the pretense of denazification, as you said, and uh, renazification was implemented under it. That's right. That's right. Well, you know, Stephen, you had mentioned also uh, 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 some history even further back. There are some people in the United States who would, 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 would favor a definition, definition of fascism, um, have settler colonial fascism, which would be white premacy and white settlerism ableism, heteropatriarchy, they call it, indig indigenous disposition, in other words, killing them, 
and ongoing capital accumulation. I mean, uh, Gerald Horn is an author who's done a good job of writing on settler, settler colonial capitalism. But it was Dubois, Dubois, E.B. Dubois, the black writer that uh, in, uh, wrote about early fascism in America. And he basically said white settler colonialism uh, in 1866, when the Ku Klux Klan actually started up, up to the 1920s um, and the rise of Jim Crow was fascism. That um, the KKK in 1866 would could be considered the the the, 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 the beginning of what would be a structured fascist movement. Uh, let's get into that. Was, uh, uh, they raised both the public and psychological. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well- yeah, let's get into that then yeah, about ahead, the history please. of uh, colonialism and manifest destiny and the KKK and all of this. Uh, so how does your take on that, Danny? Well, as I say, I, I, I generally follow the, the cue of Dubois um, in considering white, white settler capitalism, is, uh, white settler capitalism, as you would call it, is part of a fashion. For Dubois, it had a public and psychological it was a, a racial realignment of whiteness. At the end of the Civil War, whiteness was racially re- realigned, and it really blocked abolition democracy. There was a real, abolitionism couldn't go on as a result. The Ku Klux Klan organized in 1866, and of course, in 1870, capitalism was thrown into internal crisis in the United States, like it had never really been seen before, I mean, severe crisis. So um, capitalism after the Civil War and during Reconstruction and fascism and Manifest Destiny all have a particular United States steel chrome-plated kind of fascism that you can see. This, that, that I think you would find in other West, uh, uh, other settler uh, colonies, for example, in Australia seems to be moving in the same way right now. Uh, so I think that's... Uh, Du Bois says that the wages of whiteness offer, offer social prestige, access to education, forms of mobility, that police are drawn from the ranks of whites, and that this all happened after the Civil War. And, and the rise of the Jim Crow era for Black Americans was fascism. And that's what the notion of, of Black Americans would think of. And that brings us, you know, to the, you know, and of course, the Homestead Act of 1870. Uh, where you saw uh, white white people moving to the west, uh, where mostly black people were still uh, moving from the south to 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 the north, even at that time, and industrialism wasn't even that strong. But the Homestead Act of, of 1870 gave free you know land to white people. So one other thing I just want to mention, and then I'll tell you, you get back to you, Steve, is that there's a very interesting exchange. Uh, you know, left out of a, I mean, I, I like to look at black authors when I'm, I'm trying to research fascism as well. Most of it tends to come from uh, European or white people. And, um, and there is a very strong tradition of uh, theoretical understanding of black, uh, by, by black people in the, in the United States of fascism, particularly. When one thinks of the deaths in the 1960s of um, uh, John F. Kennedy, uh, uh, Bobby Kennedy, uh, Malcolm, uh, Martin Luther King. What often gets left out is the murder of George Lester Jackson. And George Jackson was a prisoner. Uh, he was born in 1941 and he lived 30 years. He died in 71. He was murdered. Okay. He was an author, an activist, and a convicted criminal. And he became a member and involved in what he co-founded, which was the Marxist-Leninist Black Guerrilla family. Now that has old 
history to it too. Um, Jackson Summit has been disappeared from history, but he was charged in 1970 with uh, two other Soledad brothers with the murder of a correctional officer. And in, when in prison, he wrote letters, uh, the prison letters of George Jackson and a combination of autobiography and manifesto. And it was addressed to an African-American audience and it became a bestseller and it earned him a huge fame. Well, there was a phony prison escape in 71 who was murdered along with five other people. But he had an ongoing debate with Angela Davis over what fascism was. And this was in 1971 or 70, which is really interesting. And I won't go into it now, but he basically thinks of fascism as Mussolini did, as corporatism, where the corporation owns the state, the state owns the corporation. Uh, and it resorts to force. And um, reforming corporate power for George Jackson is absolutely impossible. The reforms just buy off the masses. That's all they do. Reformism is not altruism. It's used to split the working class movement. So George Jackson thought, you can't reform this stabilized fascism in America. And this was in 1970. And Angela Davis, of course, was in the Communist Party. And she was saying, well, wait a minute, we're not looking to reform it. We're, 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 we're looking over through capitalism. And he's saying it's too late. It's already become fascist. And she didn't believe fascism was consolidated in America at this time. And so there was this wonderful, if anybody would ever like to get it, uh, an exchange between the two of them. Uh, there's one last person I'd like to uh, mention about uh, if anybody's interested in looking him up. His name is Kevin Rashi Johnson. Now, again, he's a member of a very controversial organization. It's called the, uh, uh, the New Black Panther Party, basically. He's the military of defense. He's in prison for the rest of his life. He's been there for 31 years. But his writings are absolutely superb. And I would really encourage people to think about uh, uh, writing, uh, 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 putting his name in and looking at some of his writing um, because he includes much of what is settler colonialism in his writing. But he has an understanding of fascism that is much more closer to Mussolini. Uh, than, uh, than anybody I know. So that's where I'll stop on, on your question and let uh, Russ and yourself continue on. Yeah, Russ, do you have anything to add? Well, uh, uh, when you talked about the Manifest Destiny, uh, you, uh, <clears throat> you know, uh, you were uh, bringing in the question of uh, the movements to the West and the land acquisition and the suppression of the Native American peoples that uh, went with that. The Klan, I think, was never really focused on that. Uh, it was always focused on uh, maintaining uh, the uh, racial divide on uh, in black-white paradigms. And, uh, you know, I think I, I, I I've always wondered how much that uh, European fascism knew and was aware of the Klan because they started out as a conscious terror organization. You know, the robes, the rituals, the fire, you know, and uh, the midnight rides and all that stuff. And, uh, you know, so they, they weren't trying to change the political system. They were trying to terrorize a segment of the population into submission. Um, and uh, uh, I, I know <clears throat> when I was uh, 
uh, looking at the Ukrainian Nazis in Ukraine, you know, the, uh, the Azov Battalion, you know, in recent years that it was formed to uh, uh, accelerate the civil war in U Ukraine uh, to keep the uh, keep it allied with NATO or put it in alliance with NATO. The, uh, they wore uh, clan insignia. Many of their members wore clan insignia on their uh, uniforms or what passed for uniforms uh, and, uh, and sought volunteers from all, all the Nazi and racist movements uh, in the West. So uh, there is some awareness in, in Europe today of what the Klan means, but I also wonder what, whether it had an influence even in the 1910s and 20s in the early organizing of, the, of these movements. I think, I think there's enough, uh, you know, from the era of colonialism, there's enough uh, uh, racialism and uh, hostility to people other than themselves that existed in Europe. They didn't need the Klan to help them, but, uh, but the model, using the model of terror uh, didn't, I don't think that really existed in the way it existed in the United States. In Europe, it didn't exist that way. I, I wonder how much they imported from the Klan. That's just- Well, I would think they imported quite a bit, Russ, and I'll tell you why. The, uh, 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 the movie that was made on the, uh, about the Klan, yeah. Uh, uh, Birth, Birth of, of a Nation. Nation. The Birth of a Nation. Uh, yeah, it was, one, it was one of the biggest hits in Hollywood. I mean, it was, it was broadcast across the world. I, 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 I mean, again, the role of the media in sustaining fascist movements by one, like Zelda says, never telling anybody what fascism is. You know, you can look at these liberal or what they call liberal progressive. I don't like to use these words. I, really, I think they're vacuous. I think they've been stripped of meaning. But I think you know what, what I mean. And I think your listeners will too. If I look at these liberal and progressive discussions about, you know, is America fascist? Is it not fascist? Is it, you never see a discussion of capitalism, fading capitalism, failing capitalism. Uh, you never see uh, 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 discussions about uh, industrialists like Peter Thiel, who, uh, who are, you know, funding uh, these people. Um, you know, you just don't see it. Yeah. Yeah. What you mean? I can't use PayPal. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, you know, Birth of a Nation had a lot to do with broadcasting American terrorism or what we can call Ku Klux Klan fascism to many, many parts of the world. And I think it was probably taken up by many, many people uh, using rituals, including cults. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Yep. You kind of see, you know, so, the use of media in this like ongoing as well. I mean, certainly I think, um, you know, in modern times, uh, 1999 is like a pivotal year. Uh, there were quite a few films released that have since become, you know, major staples of uh, what I would think of as kind of conspiratainment, but I mean, also adopt, adopted by more radical groups. I mean, The Matrix is one, but uh, Fight Club actually really stands out in hindsight as uh, a significant precursor, uh, I think, to what we would now think of as like the alt-right and that type of thing. Uh, I mean, it really is almost like a thoroughly uh, proto-fascistic movie. Uh, which, of course, you know, I mean, the, more or less, I mean, the, uh, the protagonist is uh, creating a terror network where he's brainwashing his followers into this, con this notion that they're uh, rejecting materialism and going to, uh, 
you know, rage of war against corporate America and that type of thing. But uh, what I always point out to people is they never show like what happens at the end after he blows up that uh, database with all the credit scores in it. But most likely what would have happened would not be the utopian dream that he had promised them. It probably would have been more on par with a military takeover. Right. Right. Yeah, it's a good point. What, it's a good point. What's the These name of that? Like precursors. They're they're gaslighters. They're gaslighters. Okay. Okay. I, I mean, it's just my judgment. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Proud boys. Proud boys comes up immediately with Fight Club, right? Yeah, you yeah, yeah. Think of Fight Club. You think of Proud Boys. Mm hmm. All right. Well, while we're on, like some. But you know, I think that Russell mentioned something. Oh, go ahead, Danny. I'm sorry. Oh, go ahead, Danny. No, I don't want to be too verbose. Okay, okay. Well, while we're on the topic of the domestic movements, let's talk a bit about the German-American Bund. So, Danny, tell us uh, why, uh, tell us a bit about it, why Hitler rejected them, and what outfits replaced them. Uh, the German-American Bund. Yes, uh, let me, uh, give, give me a second here to pull this up. Um, a very interesting uh, a topic indeed, if I could reference myself to it correctly. Um, I don't want to. Uh, Russ, do you have anything to add while I'm searching? About uh, the bond? Yeah. Uh, I, I, you know, I, I just th think of, the, when I think of the bond, uh, it was uh, being uh, stimulated and assisted and funded from uh, a variety of German sources, but uh, it created overexposure of uh, German operations inside the United States. And, um, you know, I haven't read the history uh, on it to the level to say that, you know, it's historically established, but I suspect the overexposure is why Hitler quit funding supporting it and uh, began uh, supporting other groups and uh, uh, recruiting uh, Nazi agents at a more discreet and level, uh, uh, you know, but they, they, people associated with, uh, with support for Germany really rallied around the Christian fronters as a, um, you know, as a group that was a little more uh, a street fighting type group and, uh, you know, re replaced uh, the Bund, I think, and in terms of Im importance for a, uh, a Nazi front. And of course, the Christian front is, you know, in, um, uh, in, in part of the America First movement and a variety of other places where um, it, you know, the Christian front makes it look like it's really American and uh, by name. And it's accepted in the America First Committee along with the, uh, uh, you know, other, uh, you know, elements that are pro-Nazi like the uh, American Vigilante Intelligence Federation and some of those other groups uh, that I talked about in the past, Harry Young's group. And so, <clears throat> you know, groups, uh, groups, you know, uh, they, they get overexposed, just no longer have any value. And it creates too much curiosity from uh, 
you know, when Democrats want to start investigating a boon to see who the German agents are that are funding it, uh, it's, it's lost its value. That's a good point. You know, the, 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 before the German bond, there was the, in, 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 there was the Fascist League of North America. And that was in 1924. It was founded by fascist Italian-American organizations. Mm -hmm. So when fascism started to rise in Italy, you had these grassroots fascist clubs. Mm -hmm. And they started to form Italian-American communities in the U.S. And, the, and uh, uh, even though there was hostility from some Italian diplomatic people who saw a move as counterproductive, uh, these, these groups continued. But then eventually, as you said, they were found to be counterproductive for propaganda purposes, and they were, they were, they were disowned. The German-American Bund, or what was initially called the German-American Federation, was... was uh, of course, uh, founded uh, in, in the United States. Um, they had uh, at their height, at their height, they had 20, 20 youth training camps. Uh, they pr promoted these training camps, much as Berlusconi used soccer clubs. And down here in Latin America, we see the same thing with sports, soccer clubs. In this case, it's a youth training camps, family-friendly summer camps, you know, Camp Siegfried in Long Island, Camp Hindenburg in Wisconsin, another one in Pennsylvania. And uh, in these, they had a 100-acre camp in Orland in Sussex Hills in 1937. And they'd have German Day festivities. And at the height of the popularity um, was the 1939 rally in Madison Square Garden that some listeners may know about, some may not, um, where uh, they took over Madison Square Garden, 22,000 fund members. They carried signs and banners, smash Jews, wake up, kill communists, uh, uh, stop Jewish domination of Christian Americans. And they had speakers and Nazi swastikas. And, and uh, 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 it, it all took place right under the nose of the local officials. Uh, uh, <clears throat> uh, protesters did come. And they did clash with them. And that was pretty much the end of the bun because when the clash happened, Hitler said, wait a minute, this is not good for my propaganda. I, I, I can't have this as propaganda anymore. Break up the bun and go into uh, uh, different uh, movements, either uh, individual or asymmetrical movements. Mm -hmm. uh, so yeah, the bun was a big deal, but you know what was even a bigger deal at the time that I just hit me and I, don't mean to get off subject. I don't think most people under know that Henry Wallace, who was the vice president under Franklin Roosevelt, gave a speech in 1944 about the dangers of fascism in the United States. And I'm not going to read the speech to people. If they want to find it, they just search for Henry Wallace and fascist speech, where he in no uncertain terms on microphone, public radio, and to the entire nation warns of this, these free corps in America, these terrorist organizations, what we now know as oath keepers or one percenters or whatever you want to call them. And while he was doing that, uh, you know, Henry, Henry Luce of Time Magazine and Claire Booth Luce, they, they'd fallen in love with Hitler and, and Mussolini. They were on the cover of Time Magazine over and over again. And the German community in the United States having been sold a good bill of goods to go to war with Germany in World War I, you know, 
were, were, were a very close community with many of them. And so when World War II came, you know, the first call was no war with Germany. We're not going to get duped into this again. No more war with Germany. And yet when war began with Germany and the United States, many of these Germans who had grown up in World War I um, became members of the Bund. And then you had Charles Edward Coughlin, right, who was broadcasting in the 1930s to the Bund and everyone else. Now, he was a Roman Catholic priest from Canadian America. But you would know him, Russ, because um, he was based in the United States here in Detroit. He was the founding priest of the National Shrine of the Little Flower Church. Right. And he was one of the first of these political Limbaugh, Rush Limbaugh type of people, or Pat Robertson, or like you say, Dobson. He used radio to reach a mass audience during the 30s. He had 30 million listeners that would tune into his weekly broadcast. And I mean, that, think of that's right. 30 million listeners. Charles Coughlin, the priest, was uh, given CBS radio network to provide the platform, CBS gave right. the platform, CBS radio. Absolutely right. Absolutely right. And he had a newspaper distributed by mail. Um, uh, 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 he supported some of the, the he supported Hirohito, uh, his broadcast, you know, uh, I mean, his yeah, chief, chief top topics were, were political and economic rather than religious. So he would like to use the word social justice. And right. again, so much is hijacked from the left. And I would, I would just say then, Stephen, I'll give you the floor. And that is, is that um, much of the uh, organizing that we see going on today amongst the fascist right all over the world is very much a copy of, of the left movements. I mean, what we were organizing against the Phoenix program in 1969 and the anti-war movement um, and, and, doing, and setting up organizations. I remember I was in the Peace of Freedom Party for God knows how many years, setting up organizations, tables, canvassing, door-to-door -door mailers, Wyrick and all those people capitalized on that. And I know in, in future programs we'll get into that. But. So I just make that point about Coughlin because Coughlin um, was you know, paid by the National Association of Manufacture. And Stephen, interestingly, and I know some of your listeners will find this interesting, is he spoke of the need for monetary reform and, and that he wanted the country based on silver. And he claimed the Great Depression in the U.S. was a, a cash ban. And he wanted to, uh, to nationalize the Federal Reserve System. So you have this odd, that's why you can't define fashion. It depends on its locality. It's adaptable to any locality it's in under Bolsonaro's Brazil or under Coughlin's U.S. Uh, but Coughlin began denouncing the president as a tool of Wall Street. And Huey Long, some say, is the first person you know, to bring fascism uh, wholeheartedly outwardly in the United States. I don't believe that, but some people say that. But he was very much supported until Long was assassinated. Um, and uh, uh, yeah. That's, yeah, that's what I have to say. Well, uh, okay. The, you know, I, I think we, we also had the phenomenon, uh, uh, you know, uh, you know, of the various uh, black shirts, blue shirts, and gray shirts, and whatever, in the United States. But then we also had the American Legion, which was that's formed. Right. Which was formed in 1919 and worked in part as an anti-labor organizing. You know, American Legionnaires 
you know, uh, you know, harassed and killed uh, union organizers in some parts of the country. But they also uh, were immediately latched on because there, uh, you know, and as you know, uh, 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 the story is told in the Jules Archer has told the story in the plot to seize the White House, how the uh, uh, Wall Street financiers were funding and owned the American Legion, and they immediately latched on to uh, Mussolini and made him an honorary member of the American Legion. And I think they had him speak at, um, at, at some of their e e events, and they they upheld and promoted Mussolini as, as an ideal. And th because uh, they sent, they had sent uh, the, uh, the wall, these Wall Street uh, organizers of this had sent uh, uh, one of their people to Europe to study how the veterans movements were being used as the backbone of the fascist movements in Italy and Germany. That's and interesting. they came back Based well, it, on that, they organized the American Legion. Well, the Legion, as I understand it, too, was also partly an outgrowth of the um, the American Protective League, which had been set up uh, by our own military intelligence here during the First World War. Is kind of an auxilia. Um, they were eventually forced to uh, shut it down, though, after it uh, uh, had been engaged in what I think was referred yeah. to at times as Ku Klux Klan work or something to that effect. Um, but yeah, the Legion, uh, oh, okay. is, you know, it's been used by some of these, uh, well, I mean, it's been used probably as a domestic spying apparatus. I mean, in many of the uh, years afterwards as well, and also as an anti-labor movement. Um, but I believe, uh, William Donovan was a, a co-founder of the Legion, if I'm not mistaken. And I think also Robert E. Wood, uh, who was uh, big in the American Security Council and some of these other groups. Uh, yeah, I don't remember their names in connection with the Legion, but uh, they could have been. Uh, but after uh, after World War II and perhaps uh, during World War II, uh, the Legion uh, provided people to uh, members working in industrial plants to be uh, informants on on workers there, so that they could monitor uh, the uh, left-wing movements in the union in the in the plant and so the lead, they had a whole program with the american legion to set up a spy apparatus in, uh, on, on the shop floors of uh, american industry and this is again from my point of view what is so important is that it, it is hard a fascism is is, is an anti-socialist movement i mean at heart it's an anti-workers movement It'll promise the workers everything it'll be, but it's an anti-worker movement with it attempts to create a neo, basically a neo-feudal economy. Yep. Uh, right. uh, and, I, and, 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 and so I, I, Donovan's association doesn't surprise me. And of course the financing was also coming from Nazi Germany as well. Well, yeah, I, but you know, you had enough uh, Wall Street money bags uh, behind them to where they had what they needed, you know. Absolutely. So, uh, and yes, Donovan so was a, a co-founder. Donovan definitely was a co-founder of the American Legion. Mm -hmm. Looking at Wild Bill Donovan, the spy master who created the OSS and modern intelligence by Douglas Waller. 
he states that uh, Donovan, uh, he joined several dozen other officers in Paris to organize the American Legion, which would lobby for veterans benefits and advocate for a strong national defense. Always a strong national defense. Yeah, okay. Interesting, isn't it? Because we now see uh, these, uh, uh, like you had mentioned in Ukraine, and then as we'll get into the Aerocross and all these other ones that are, are all for a strong national defense. You know, Stephen, an interesting thing about the boom that, that I just threw in as an anecdote is that it was around 1937 uh, when uh, Fred Trump, his pals in the Klan, they joined up in the boom and the Nazi silver shirts and the Black Legion, and they formed what was called the Stormtroops. And this was an early Unite the Right movement, and it received heavy corporate funding. And by 37, Fred Trump was making half, you know, hands of profits on Queen Slum as a Queen Slumlord. But did any of the question is issue, did any of these profits end up in the coffers of the boon or the stormtroops? And 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 in addition, the boon member, a German immigrant, Waldemar Offmer, infiltrated the US military as a civilian employee and set up a microfilm information for Avoir handlers in Berlin. So, so, you know, fascism is really a homegrown movement in the United States in so many ways. Yeah, yeah. Well, you probably know Fred Trump was arrested in 1923 uh, as a Klan member who fought the police who were trying yeah. to, you know, stop, stop some of their activities. I He's guess also been accused of being a German spy. Is that right? So, yes, that's true. I don't have any evidence to support the assumption, but I know that, that he has been. Yeah. Yeah, I did look up the New York Times. I copied the New York Times story on Fred Trump. It just mentions his name in passing, but it talks about the the fight the Klan had with the police. Mm -hmm. The police were badly outnumbered, but I guess uh, they still prevailed. You know, so you know, and you you can imagine uh, some of these cops were probably first gen, second generation Irish. You know, and the Klan hated them. You know. You go back to the gangs of New York period, you know. Yeah, yeah, all this, yeah, all this uh, religious uh, uh, stuff, uh, and uh, yeah, of course, of course. Mm -hmm. All right, well, let's get into some of the intrigues that were uh, playing out domestically uh, during the First World War, or excuse me, the Second World War, uh, and the lead up to it. Uh, now, you got, um, Danny, you thought that there were several attempts on FDR's life, right? Well, yes, and you know what's so interesting, and I want to just put, point this out to the people that uh, uh, let me see if I can find this here. Yes, yes, Steve, I do have a few things I wish to say about that. Um, but there is a very interesting uh, article that I've come across that uh, uh, that Robert E. Lee and uh, well, let me put it this way: that John Wilkes Booth was a member was a member of a a a, a, a white a settler racist, uh, however you want to say it. Uh, was it the Knights of the Golden Circle, um, I uh, think, or something like that? There you go, the Knights of the Golden Circle. There you go, and that and that you know, the, the, not only was did he kill Lincoln, but there were there were actually there were th there were three plots. It's very similar to the Kennedy assassination. You know, Kennedy assassination had three plots. One way it was. First, it was going to take place in Miami, and then they moved it to Chicago, and then finally in Dallas. Well, with, with FTR, um, uh, I mean, with uh, Lincoln, first they were going to capture him. 
And then we're going to take him and hold him for ransom and then sue for peace. They give Lincoln back as long as they can have their, their, their own country. And that for the first capture attempt failed. Uh, the second one failed because uh, uh, Robert E. Lee lost at the bottom and, uh, and it couldn't. So they, they came up with it. Well, what are we going to do now? And they said, well, as our final act. We're going to assassinate uh, Lincoln, but we're not just going to assassinate Lincoln. I don't know of many. This was a plot to steal the White House, too. I don't know if many people know that uh, uh, Lincoln's uh, vice president was stabbed in the face five times. So when one starts to think about Mike Pence and my vice president, was he under any threat from these radical groups or not? Who knows? Uh, Stewart does survive, or, or, or I think that was his name, survived uh, the, uh, the attempt to get his life. Of course, uh, Lincoln didn't. Uh, but in terms of the, um, uh, what you had just asked me uh, about the plot to seize the White House in Roosevelt, there were several plots to assassinate Roosevelt, many of them. Uh, one of them failed in New York on February 16, 1930. That was when Mayor Surmat, who was a mayor of New York, New York at the time, he was in an open car, just like Kennedy, with um, of, of, of Roosevelt. And supposedly a, a lone anarchist. Of course, alone, we never find out what that means. And the word anarchist is just a vilifying term, so nobody even asks what it means. A lone anarchist is blamed uh, for his, uh, for Shermack's murder. Uh, that the lone anarchist was really after, uh, was after Rosenbaum. And we had a similar lone anarchist, remember, in the Reichstag uh, burning, the Hitler blamed that on the communists. Anyway, Smedley Butler was, was really the, the plot to take the White House. And there's a book that he wrote. He was a five-star Marine general, the most decorated. He wrote a book called Wars a Racket, where he indicates that how he was a tool of American imperialism from 1900 all the way into the Sandinista killing in 1928 of Sandino uh, from uh, United Fruit Company. You know, and that he, he did the work, the, the heavy military work for the corporations. That was his job, protecting the corporations against competition, because the last thing capitalists want is competition. They'll talk to you all day long about competitive this and competitive that. We need to competitive. The last thing they want is competition. They want monopoly, full control. Yeah. And so these libertarians, which we can get to into in another time, is a, is, is a real hoax. But the Liberty League, it's a consortium of wealthy, powerful, industrious financiers were at the core of this coup plot. And they were enthusiastic Hitler and Mussolini supporters. Okay? And they went to uh, General Smedley Butler because he was a decorated hero, a patriot, and they thought they could trust him. And they said, uh, look, um, we want to take a 500,000 uh, people to the White House. And we want to take the White House over and get rid of Roosevelt. He's a communist. He works for the Soviet Union. This all came in, out in a, in a report called McCormick-Dickstein Committee that investigated the coup. People can never read about it. But anyway, uh, as Butler was like a soldier's grunt, and he didn't favor the brass corps. So he had an extraordinary career, and they went to him. He did a march on the Bonus Army in Washington, D.C., it was uh, violently broken up, and uh, they thought they could, they could trust him. But when Franklin Delano Roosevelt removed the U.S. from the gold standard, 
uh, that decision alienated a whole bunch of wealthy people for a whole bunch of different reasons. So the Klu Klauters went to Smedley and they made a speech at the American Legion Convention in favor of the gold standard. And they took Buckley behind closed doors and they said, um, well, you know, will you do this? Will you get an organization uh, to go take over the White House? Um, we're not going to tell you who's heading it, but we can tell you DuPont, J.P. Morgan, some company men are involved, American Liberty League, uh, the Pete Carn family, which was Pittsburgh Glass, the Mellons, Rockefellers, Huttons. I mean, all the, you know, all, all the, 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 the industrials. And so um, they attempted to, uh, to get him to do this. Um, and he blew the whistle on him. And as a result, we now know what they were up to. But Roosevelt was supposed to have been assassinated on that day. And that is the, the plot to, to seize the White House. And again, it's, uh, you know, National Association of Manufacturers right there with the money. And a wealthy bond salesman by the name of Gerald McGuire was involved. He was the contact of Butler. He was another coup plotter. There was a number of military people involved. One person had been decorated, a Morgan, a J.P. Morgan Parker, who'd been decorated by Benito Mussolini was involved. A wealthy former leader of the American Legion was involved, Hanford McNiter. I mean, these, these, these names will run you know, down river. Nobody will remember understand. But there were a number of people involved, but the mainstream media didn't give it any coverage, not one coverage of the coup attempt. In fact, they tried to cover it up. And Jewel Archer cites the New York Times as one of the, and the Times as one of the too many publications that exercised willful censorship of the coverage of the coup. And so once again, you can't get this shit done unless you have a, a strong military terroristic organizations and a mainstream media that will either cover up your crimes, okay, or tell the narrative differently than it went down to hide what really happened. So on Sunday, the it was supposed to go down and it didn't go down. And uh, that was it for the coup planners. But of course, no one went to jail. Not one person went to jail. Just like I suppose no one will go to jail over Trump. You'll never see Bannon in jail. You'll never see Sebastian Gorka in jail. You won't see Stephen Miller in jail. No. no they'll never go to jail. They'll never go into Nuremberg and they'll never go to jail. And they sacrifice the lumpen proletariat, which I will state, and I, I, and I know the Black Panther Party and the old Black Panthers disagreed with me when I used to, uh, I know Elaine Brown used to hang around with people like that. I, 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 uh, uh, the lumpen proletariat is one of the most dangerous classes in society in the world. Now, the Black Panthers were, were lumpen proletariats, and I, I don't know if that concept needs to be defined. But it's basically prisoners, homeless people, dispossessed, dislocated people, people that have no jobs, no future, no hope, no education, are ignorant, violent, uh, patriarchal, sexist. I mean, it could lit me of all the terms that you could use. They are a very dangerous class of people, and they are the free, they are the free course. They were the free course. 
And they are the vets coming back from Afghanistan that said, what the hell did you do to me? What did you do to me? Just like Rush, you know, from because you were in Vietnam or you were in combat. But what did you do to me? What did you now I'm coming back? What am I coming back to? There's no jobs. There's a senile president, uh, a, a vice president you, you don't even see who, who failed to indict Mnuchin and, and Goldman Sachs for their crimes, but puts, you know, black kids with a, a joint in their knickers in jail for 20 years. And they come back and they look around, they go, there's no jobs. There's no nothing. Capitalism is a failure. It, it cannot provide for civilization. It's the concentration of wealth in fewer and fewer hands, which ultimately creates the need for a military to protect that wealth and those banks, and the need for a propaganda machine to make sure that people are illiterate, and the need for a private Catholic or religious educational programs that tell people that they were born to, to suffer on earth and that they will find freedom pie in the sky when you die, like the IWW used to say. Okay, this is all part of what is being organized internationally now, not just within nations, internationally across borders. Anyway, I'll stop at that point. All right, Russ, did you uh, have anything to add about uh, FDR's uh, assassination attempts against him? No, I think uh, uh, Danny uh, covered it uh, pretty well, including the uh, the best known, you know, the plot <laughs> to seize the White House. Um, but uh, you know what what I've read on, on it uh, uh, does su suggest that uh, the threats continued against Roosevelt. Uh, the plot to seize the White House, I think, was uh, like 1934, if I'm remembering right. And um, uh, despite its failure, uh, there were continuing uh, threats to Roosevelt uh, uh, for years to follow. And so, uh, uh, you know, uh, and I think uh, I think they felt that. Uh, in some cases that they want they were motivated not not just by the domestic issues the gold standard and uh the labor movement uh protections for the labor movement and so forth and the domestic programs but they they wanted somebody who would uh uh not stand in hitler's way that's right and that was in the 30s yep so um <clears throat> Uh, you know, I, uh, and I think in part, he had somebody like Henry Wallace to be his vice president because that was good life insurance. Nobody, not, none of these plotters wanted to get rid of Roosevelt just to get Henry Wallace as president. Exactly, Russ, exactly. But when he picked Truman, when, when Truman took succession, he dismantled the entire New Deal. Yep, yep, yep. Truman, you know. You know, I don't pretend to be an expert on Roosevelt, but I don't think we would have seen the launch of the Cold War like we saw in the recruitment of uh, Nazis into the United States, like uh, we saw. And, you know, and of course that accelerated under Eisenhower. 
you know, of all people, you know. Eisenhower was out playing golf every day. Let the military do whatever they want. Anytime I, they tapped him on the shoulder, he'd give him a check. Yeah, I know. I, I know. I remember as a kid, I remember us joking about him being out golfing all the time. Um, but, um, um, but it, at the same time, there were reports on what was going on. And, and then weirdly, all this stuff about the National Military Industrial Conferences and, and all this stuff is going on while he's president by his people under the agencies he controls. And then after he leaves, he warns about the military industrial complex. <laughs> Weird. I think that's what's known as a guilty conscience. Yeah. It, it... All right. Mm -hmm. All right. As we uh, head into the home stretch here, let's get into the capital flight out of Nazi Germany as the war drew to a close. There's been a lot of speculation about what became of these monies and what purposes they were put towards. So first off, when did the Germans start making arrangements for this massive capital flight? Uh, Danny, do you want to start us off on that one? Yes, let me uh, let me position myself in a place where I can, can, can get it because if we're talking about, <clears throat> and I will be using this word uh, a lot. And I, I, it's called I, 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 uh, actually it's Dave Emery's terminology. I owe it to him. It's the deadly Borman capital flight. And um, it, it, let me begin it by this way: uh, there was a uh, Borman uh, was very high up in, in the Hitler hierarchy. Um, his exact title, I'm not sure, but he was very, very high up in the Hitler hierarchy. Um, and uh, he knew that the war was lost in 1944. In fact, most, most uh, astute Germans understood that in 1944, really the war had been lost. And so they had, uh, uh, they had what was called, and I'm looking for it, please excuse me just for a minute here. Uh, they had what was recalled called the, uh, uh, goodness gracious, here I am unprepared for this, the Borman Capital flight, uh, the Red House Report. Basically in 1844, uh, a group of industrialists met, okay? And uh, they said, look, Germany's not gonna make it. We're gonna lose the war. We've gotta get, the money out of here so that we can relaunch the Fourth Reich at a later time. It was a retrenchment, and they realized that, the, that, that we can retrench, but we need to get the, 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 the money out of, out of, uh, out. So, so basically, what, what money are we talking about? Well, Germany had stolen, I think it's over one third of all of Europe's wealth. Everything from art to gold to the teeth of the people, everything that they could possibly uh, steal, they stole. Uh, so they had to get it out. And uh, in order to do that, they had a, a, a meeting called the Red, uh, at the Red, at, at a, a specific place where I'm looking for it. And I'm talking as I'm looking for it and not finding it. But it was called uh, uh, the Red House. And uh, they decided, all right, we're going to get this money out. And the way we're going to do it is we're going to set up 750 corporations. All right. Now, they were very smart. The Borman organization, uh, though it was residing in Germany, 
uh, learned a lot from organized crime in Meyer Lansky on two different fronts. Number one, Meyer Lansky was uh, uh, was very smart. After Capone was uh, thrown in jail for tax evasion, uh, he knew that all of his ships all over the world that he would transport uh, drugs, uh, uh, trafficking of, of every sort, were being uh, uh, looked at by the NSA, and especially by a, a certain woman, I think her name was Friedman, who was a, a very, very smart person. So Meyer Lansky began, he said, he began the process of setting up front companies all over the world uh, to launder organized crime profits. And it was through this understanding that the Borman organization, uh, they took a look at it and they said, well, wait a minute, this is, maybe we can do something like that. And so what they did is they set up front organizations and they began to send their money all over the world. And where did they send it? Well, they sent it through 750 corporations into businesses all over the world. Mm -hmm. From Chase Manhattan Bank, um, mm -hmm. uh, to front organizations. I don't know, Russ, perhaps you can jump in and help me here. If you have much knowledge of this, I'm not sure I, if you do. I, I seem to remember that there was a uh, Borman related family, uh, <clears throat> family related uh, to Martin Borman, it had an agricultural implement company in New Jersey. And um, that would have been the type of thing that would have probably would have been in that network. It was a uh, very mysterious, somebody was working on research on it. <clears throat> I don't think they ever got enough to write about it. Well, here's an article that appeared in the New York Times in 1973 by Paul Manning. And I'm not going to read the article, but the title is Martin Borman in the Future of Germany. Um, uh, Paul Manning was a news reporter during World War II. And he was a news reporter along with the very famous news reporter of, uh, for uh, CBS at the time. What was his name? Um, Walter Cronkite? No, not Walter Cronkite. His associate. Uh, Goodness gracious me. But anyway, he was a very, very famous uh, news person, Paul Mann. And so uh, what he did is he went to Walter Cronkite, who was one of his associates, and he said, look, I've been looking into the Borman organization. This was in the, in the early 60s. I've been looking at, 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 at this man by the name of Martin Borman. Uh, that um, uh, uh, They said that he died in, uh, in Germany after the war, but he escaped. Uh, he's in Argentina. And I'm looking into his, um, into him. And so basically what Manning did is he made the rest of his life a journey into what Borman did. And what Borman did is he allocated large sums to industrialists so they could establish a post-war foundations in foreign countries. And uh, this meant setting people up in the factories, technical experts. Um, they had a meeting in Strasbourg in 1944. It was at that meeting that it was decided, okay, that 750 companies were set up all over the world by German industrials from August 10th, 1944 in Strasbourg. And this was found by the U.S. Department of, 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 of Treasury in 1946. They discovered this. And this is why Seldis gets so angry. He says, you don't, you don't tell anybody, you don't, you don't report the news, okay? They found that he had set up 750 companies. Bury everything, Borman said. You'll need it to return to power. And by this time, 
the rat line, which you know more about than I do, that you should speak about, was not only rat lining people into Central Latin America, they were rat lining loot in submarines, uh, art treasures, uh, but the majority of the gold and the bullion and things of that nature was, um, was basically laundered. And who helped launder it? Well, of course, Sullivan and Cromwell, the same people that you would think uh, would help uh, do such a thing. Um, the Borman money, and I think I've lost my note here. The Borman flight capital is probably the most important part of post-World War Germany because what Germany was able to do is they were able to get all their gold out, all their silver out, all their riches out. Uh, they were able to launder the money back into banks and those banks were then laundered back into other banks. One bank was in Rotterdam that was laundered. Uh, the BIS, the Bank of International Settlements, was guilty in laundering tons of right gold. Where did the right gold end up? That's the question at issue. Where did it end up? Well, we know one place it ended it up. It ended up building West Germany. The Marshall Plan did not build West Germany. West Germany, according to Paul Manning in his famous book, Nazi in, uh, 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 Martin Bormann, Nazi in Exile, um, has made the case and he showed the evidence that the Marshall Plan didn't build West Germany. It was Bormann money. And that's why Galen was put uh, in, into West Germany as well. He had been a spy on the Eastern Front. He could watch the, the banks. He could take Deutsche Bank was involved, for example. Many, many, many banks were involved in laundering the Bormann money. This money came to amounts that I don't think anybody can calculate at this time. It's just billions or trillions and trillions of dollars. And it was used to build up a fourth right. And it was used to, 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 to build up rights in the Middle East, in Latin America. It used to fund Peron. Peron was completely funded. It was also ironically used in Guatemala in 1954 in the Arbenz overthrow. The, the Nazis were very much uh, involved in that. They've been living in the area for a very long time. So the Borman Capital flight funds might be something that will, we, I need to do a little bit more scratch and sniff in preparation as I seem not to be able to find what I had written down, uh, which is important, but it is the seed money for the Fourth Reich. And I think it, that that money is still somewhere. And I think that it is being used to prop up fascist countries throughout the world. And I can't prove it. And I think this is where the Golden Lily funds come in as well. It's, the Sterlings have written some tremendous uh, stuff on. 50 years of, of loot from Asia stolen from Japan, buried in tunnels all over the islands, everywhere. Some of this money was found by Marcos, some of it wasn't. Some of it was found by Willoughby, General Willoughby and MacArthur and stolen. Others by Lansdale found it, uh, some of the money and stole it. But the majority of the money went, in my judgment, a great deal of it went to the Moonies. And I think that the Moonies have been funded by Golden Lily Funds. But I'm not answering your question because I'm not prepared and I must apologize to your audience. It's something that I, I thought I had in front of me and I don't. Oh, that's all right. Don't on a, a latter point about Moody. Say again? 
Oh, I was just trying to dance. Okay, I go ahead, Russ. Go ahead. Oh, okay. I just wanted to be clear um, on the money funding. <clears throat> I talked to somebody in a position to know back in the eighties about funding, and then they said the moon, the unification uh, network is funded by a uh, and overseen by a group of three Japanese and three Korean uh, leaders, and the money it comes from uh, uh, Japanese and Korean industry. It's, and I think it's sort of like the, the, the corrupt thing that was created, you know, that you're gonna put one half of 1% toward the Nazi party. There's, there's uh, a, uh, a secret tax probably on industries, but that's when you had like, uh, uh, you know, Kodama and Roisha Sasagawa and people like that who are on the board of uh, the Unification Church fronts. And, uh, you know, they were in leaders of industry and business in uh, the Yakuza of Japan. And that's who was funding. That's right. Well, you know, I, 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 uh, uh, Stephen, just to, I, I found what I was looking for. And, I, and I'll just give you some brief highlights. IG Farm and as, as you might know, merged with Standard Oil. It, it's a, it was a, Standard yeah. Oil got 80%. Uh, IG Farben got 20%. Uh, but they merged uh, uh, so they could support Hitler. And that was in 1929. And uh, IG Farben basically um, uh, set up a synthesized coal, the tetraethanol lead that was no knock lead that was needed for the airplanes at that time, and the butyl rubber, which was non porous, so that it, it, it had a quality to it that could be used in airplanes as, as gromlets and things of that nature. Well, Brown Brothers and Roots was involved in all this, and of course, uh, so were all the, in, the uh, usual suspects. When the war ended, they needed to get the money out. So what did IG Farben do? The large, largest, most powerful chemical combine in the world, okay? They admitted under oath that they concealed over 500 firms in 92 countries. That's where some of the loot went. It was the largest single earner of foreign exchange for Germany, and it had a cartel agreement with the Aluminum Company of America, DuPont, Ethel Export, Imperial Chemical, Mitsui in Japan. And when Martin Borden switched on the green light for massive transfers of wealth, IG Farben moved the money, wherever they he said to move it. Borman was in charge. Borman escaped Germany. Borman was never killed. In fact, he was alive in 1981, which is another story. Then there's Sherman Schmitz, which is IG's president of the era, and he reported to Borman after the war. And here's his quote. Our measures of camouflage have proved to be very good during the war and have even surprised our expectations. And so those measures he was referring to were the camouflage of carbon, of carbon assets as opposed to word advice. And, the, and, the, and the, the primary technique that was used for shifting control of German property to avoid Allied seizure, which was, which was the issue. In the last days of the war was a cloaking device. The German owner would transfer his or her holdings to a neutral nation or neutral national in the nation who acted as a nominal owner. And that made it easy for the general European practice of using bearer shares 
as a token of ownership. All you had to have was the bearer's share. You get they're negotiable by delivery. You can get, and they would get a fee for their service. Well, of course, who did this was the Swiss. The Swiss were not a neutral country in World War II. The Swiss were allied with the fascists throughout World War II. But the Swiss were only, were only one place. The man who can, uh, 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 at the time of this writing in 1973, Paul Manning states that uh, Martin Borman is 72 years old. He's legally appointed head of state. He does not consider himself a war criminal. Uh, he did never have contact with Borman per personally, but um, because of his writings about Borman, his son was murdered. The editor who published his book, Martin Borman, Nazi in Exile, had both of his legs broken immediately after publication and had to be shipped off to a, a foreign country to recuperate. These are the kinds of things that he was being told by writing this book. You write this book, this is how you pay. You lose your son, you lose your editor. But he kept writing and he kept writing. And he has one interesting point, then I'll stop. He said that in his talks to a member of, of the Borman group, see, Borman got old, and so they, everything had to be handed down to the Fourth Reich. There is a Fourth Reich. This is the international, I told you. It's not German in, 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 in identity anymore. It's merged. It's huge now. But he, he had... He, Borman would never talk to him, but they knew that he was writing a book about him because uh, Edward R. Murrow, that's what I was thinking. If he had been a protege of Edward oh, R. Yeah. Murrow. Yeah. Okay. So he gets somebody from the Borman organization contacts him, a younger person. And he says um, to him, he says, and this is a quote from Manny, he says, a revealing insight into this international financial and industrial network was given me by a member of the Borman organization residing in West Germany. This man, says Manny, Meyer Lansky was his name, was a financial advisor in the Las Vegas, Miami, Miami underworld, and sent a message to Borman through my West German SS contact that Lansky promised that if he received a piece of Borman's action, He'd keep the Israeli agents off of his back. Now, why would Lansky say something like that to Borman? Well, because of Eichmann. When the, it, it, there's a theory that when the Israelis went and captured Eichmann and brought Eichmann back for a trial and hung him, that they were told, the, the Nazi hunters, never do that again because part of who we're working with is the Borman network. There are, according to David Emery and according to others I've read, and of course, Manning, of course, that Borman used a number of Jewish people as fronts. And this might explain some of the happenings that are going on in Zionist Israel. But I don't know, I'm not making that claim. But I am making the claim that uh, Lansky was indeed involved with the Borman group, the Borman Group was indeed involved in shipping the money of Germany out and then reinvested it back in Germany in some of the same corporations 
that were headed by Nazis or Russians. Now, um, another okay. interesting group that plays into a lot of this um, was a mysterious company known uh, as the World Commerce Corporation. Uh, which had grown out of an earlier company. I believe it was the uh, British American Canadian Corporation. Um, but anyway, this, uh, this company had essentially been set up by a host of uh, former intelligence officers. Initially, it was a lot of Brits, and then later you had some Americans, but there were some prominent guys in it. Uh, one of the people who was involved is an individual we've mentioned throughout this, and that was Wild Bill Donovan, uh, who was a director at one point, I believe. Uh, there was also William Stevenson, Sir William Stevenson, who had headed uh, the British security coordination during uh, the Second World War, which was effectively the basis for the Office of Strategic Services. Um, in fact, some have even argued that Stevenson was uh, who essentially helped Donovan set up the OSS, but I digress. <clears throat> now, as the Second World War came to a close, this was right around the time the WCC was set up. And uh, theoretically, it was uh, put together to stash some of these, you know, invaluable assets uh, that we had developed during the Second World War as uh, some of the budgets were being slashed and some of the units were being downsized. Uh, but it ended up uh, effectively taking possession of a very interesting company. Uh, I don't know the exact name, but the abbreviation for it was So Find Us, which was based out of uh, Franco, Spain. Now, So Find Us, you know, was essentially the type of company that Danny had just been describing. It was uh, controlled by an SS man who had dual Spanish citizenship. And uh, during the waning years of the war, I believe around 43, 44, it had taken possession of a considerable amount of gold uh, that was transferred to it from Nazi Germany. And um, in the post-war years, the WCC in turn took over uh, the remnants of So Find Us. Uh, but there were still German agents involved in this. In fact, I think the same SS man uh, who had been the head of Sofindus was essentially kept on as a consultant by the WCC. And uh, there was another interesting guy uh, who was an agent in all of this as well, uh, named Otto Scorzini, uh, sometimes known as Scarface, uh, Hitler's alleged uh, favorite commando. Uh, Scorzini was another guy who was really active in a lot of these post-war uh, circles and uh, had also been reputed to uh, be in possession of a lot of funding that was uh, distributed. So it's uh, interesting to see him in that whole uh, kind of milieu around the WCC. But um, the World Commerce Corporation, you know, as kind of Danny was kind of describing, really ran around and made a lot of these loans in the post-war years uh, to many European countries and so forth. And, you know, you have to kind of understand as well, um, trade had really broken down a lot of the countries around the world, you know, I mean, really most of them outside the United States were bankrupt. And uh, in the immediate years after the war, a lot of uh, trade was actually conducted through bartering. And that was another thing that the WCC was really big at uh, setting up was this sort of barter and exchange uh, network. And uh, one other thing about the WCC that's interesting is that they ended up in possession of a lot of pharmaceutical companies and that type of thing, uh, which again brings up a lot of interesting questions because there have been some indications that they also had the inevitable organized crime connections. Um, you know, a lot of morphine and that type of thing, you know, even some of the world's heroin in the years uh, prior to the Second World War was actually manufactured um, by pharmaceutical companies like Merck and it disappeared and ended up in the hands of organized crime somehow. Uh, so yeah, there's, right. 
also a possibility that the WCC was uh, continuing on some of this tradition as well. And, you know, that's another point that should probably be emphasized when we get into some of the funding in a lot of this is drug trafficking. Uh, you know, when it comes to the Golden Lily, I mean, obviously there was the gold, but uh, you have the Yakuza bosses involved in all this and also their um, allies in Taiwan. Uh, I mean, in a lot of ways, the KMT, uh, the ruling political party there was effectively a glorified uh, drug cartel for many years. So um, there is a very strong possibility that drug money was another major aspect of this uh, funding network. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, I think so. I think, and you mentioned Otto Scorsini, and of course, Scorsini was famous. Uh, Hitler loved him because Scorsini rescued Mussolini. I don't know if you know that, but uh, Mussolini was almost captured yes. in 1944. And Scorsini, uh, yeah, it was the hand gliders. Broke him out of prison. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, yeah, yeah no, no, they came in on the hand gliders and Scorzini actually almost like ruined the whole plot because he was a huge man. I think he was like six, seven or something like that. And uh, he was almost too big for the hand That's gliders. Right. Yeah. But so, they got him out. They got him out. Yeah, they did. But yes, the World Commerce Corporation. When you're talking about Scorzini and you're talking about Meyer Lansky, you know, you're talking also about intersections with the uh, American intelligence agencies at the, in this period. And uh, so at some point, you know, uh, so somebody's making policy, making decisions, not these guys aren't operating alone. You know, you see Scorzani at Wackel conferences, you know, in the, the 60s, I believe, and uh, so forth. So this is... Um, you know, this is uh, still there's these guys are still fronting for intelligence operations that that play are probably playing a role that we'll never be able to assess in the background. Uh, not with uh, not with books vanishing and print and print material vanishing. It seems it seems quite unlikely. Yeah, um, but uh, you you you're 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 certainly right about what you say. Yes, I certainly agree with you. Yeah. I, I think that I think that I, I, I you know, in, in, I know Steve, you want to want to stop sort soon. I think getting back to um, our notion of a definition of, of fascism, which I'm not going to get long winded about, is that uh, um, uh, fascism is, is is changed now. It's uh, it's now it's much far more legitimate. Uh, it's dressed up in a suit. Now. Uh, it's a theocratic fascism, and I think Sinclair Lewis was right in 1932. When he wrote, when fashion, fascism comes to America, it'll be wrapped in a flag and carried across. And we've witnessed the consolidation of the church and large capital interests in the state now for 70 years or more. And we can speak about the growth from 1973 on. And we'll be talking about the phenomenon in Hungary, Poland, Ukraine, uh, where this kind of uh, theocratic fascism is being developed. It's a notion of the Christian West and face off with the Russians. and. Uh, uh, it's a it, it's a very frightening it's a very very frightening prospect, but it is our lives. Well, uh, to wrap up here, let's get Great. into uh, so two uh, entities that we haven't really yeah. uh, talked too much about yet, and the, the role that they played in all this, and that was the Bank of International Settlements, settlements, and especially the Vatican. Uh, you really can't get into this without talking about the Vatican for a minute, because mm -hmm. it was crucial to this whole, I mean, post-war network, and you know, really setting up fascism for 
uh, that point as well. Um, certainly, I mean, the uh, what was it? The Latvian Treaty was so crucial to, on the one hand, legitimizing um, Mussolini, and then on the other hand, also uh, restoring a lot of prominence, uh, power, and uh, funding to the Vatican. And uh, in the case of Nazi Germany, after Hitler came to power, uh, he also instituted a uh, tithing tax on uh, the German populace as well, which I believe is still in effect to this day. It's uh, one of the reasons why the German Catholic churches remain some of the best funded in the world, despite the fact that almost no one goes to them anymore. Uh, so yeah, the Vatican is big in this. So what do you guys got on that? Uh, Danny, do you want to start off with that? I, I, I'll talk about, I'll talk yeah, I'll talk about the Vatican. Dan, oh, okay, Russ, why don't you take it that? Thank you, Russ. Oh, well, on the Vatican. Um, yeah, uh, <clears throat> uh, Pius XII uh, was, uh, was the Pope, you know, during the uh, 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 World War II and the period leading up to it. And under Pius XII, uh, cl clergy were organized uh, uh, ranking clergy were organized to form Nazi parties in uh, 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 Slovakia and Croatia. And uh, of course, Slovakia was called the Holinka Guard. Uh, but uh, I mean, this, this was headed by a Monsignor, uh, you know, and uh, priests were in leadership positions through this movement. Uh, Monsignor Tiso is uh, <clears throat> in uh, Slovakia. And uh, Croatia, uh, Ante uh, Pavlik was the head of it, and um, the Ustashi uh, of Croatia were considered more brutal than the SS during World War II, and whereas uh, the Germans would kill Jews before they burned them to death, the Ustashi burned people alive. They rip out their eyes while they're alive. They, they were just the most brutal, horrific people. I, I, and then, you know, you can't even, can't, can't even imagine. And they, they killed uh, Serbs as well as uh, Jews in numbers that are generally uh, set at about 750,000 people in Croatia. This was all done under the structure of the church. Uh, Roman Catholic Church, the Vatican. The Link Guard uh, uh, collaborated on the deportation of citizens that Germans uh, uh, wanted deported to their concentration camps, obviously Jews, but anybody who was uh, uh, a threat or a challenge to their rule. And um, the uh, leadership of these regimes were part of what was recruited in mass by the, uh, the C what would become the CIA after the, after the war was over. And uh, you'll, you'll remember from the old Nazis book that the uh, Republican party actually uh, had a calendar of uh, ethnic events that uh, honored the foundation of the Croatian Ustashi. Uh, the most vicious element of World War II. And uh, Pius XII, you know, um, you know, has been the subject of uh, folks trying to gloss over 
the real role that he played in in the collaboration uh, uh, in continental Europe. Uh, but you know, obviously, uh, the, the collaborate. <clears throat> there were non-Catholic elements in the Nazi Party. You know, the uh, the Nordics, uh, Goring, and all those that wanted to resurrect the the, the Nordic mythology. Um, that didn't want anything to do with Catholicism, but it was, you know, uh, the uh, von Papen and others in uh, the uh, German Catholic circles, you know, made uh, their tenuous alliances with uh, Hitler and the Nazi party in the 1930s uh, to keep that, keep that relationship intact. And, uh, and, and so I think, uh, the, the, the real story of uh, the Vatican in World War II still has to be written. And you know, Russ, you, you, I know you've done so much work on rat lines. Uh, and, 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 and I know that uh, you've had Lavenda on, uh, Stephen, on your show on rat lines. Let me make a couple of, of, of comments about the Vatican uh, Church. It just I, There's much more, of course. But yeah. The Roman Catholic Church gave Hitler money personally. Mm-hmm. After World War I, the Pope gave money to Hitler personally. Now, the Vatican got a lot of money, it had a lot of money, so they invested in Germany. It was a good, stable system, they thought. They were going to invest their money in Germany. So the Americans and the Vaticans bought up as many industries as they could in Germany after World War I because it was cheap. The country was suffering. It would allow them to buy them. What happened in America is that Teddy Roosevelt was screaming so much about the cartels that they passed some anti-cartel legislation, excuse me, okay, that the industrialist, capitalist industrialist class did not like. And so they started looking for investments abroad in Germany is one of the places they invested. So with the, with, with the Vatican, they invested, okay, money's overseas. Well, in 1919, there was an act in America that allowed Americans and Vaticans to actually buy European lands and businesses. Up to 1919, they were not allowed to buy European lands. So the BIS and the Vatican banks, Sullivan and Cromwell, Dulles and the crew, they tried to find ways to cloak investments in Germany, no matter who won the next, in the, who won the war. Okay. The whole issue is to export capital. So what they needed to do is how they moved the money during the latter part of World War II. It gets back to what you had asked before. Hitler needed diplomatic immunity to move money. So he seized the German Catholic Church. Well, the Vatican, okay, was not very happy about that. Okay. Anyway, he seized the German Catholic Church to get the diplomatic immunity. He thought he needed to move funds out. Okay, the Vatican, uh, uh, the BIS, and the Vatican actually were the ones getting Nazi money out of Germany. Dulles hid Nazi money through the BES. Switzerland was not neutral, as I, as I said. The way that it, that it, the Vatican was able to escape the way they were the way Germany escaped war reparations. The Vatican, money was given from the Vatican to, to, to Krupp, which was then given to the Tucson Bank, that was then given to a bank in Amsterdam, 
And then the money went to front companies run by the Vatican. That's the post money laundering by the Vatican. Okay. To, to, to make sure that the allies could not get their hands on the funds after Germany lost World War II. And the Vatican was instrumental in money laundering by setting up front companies run by the Vatican for post money. The World Commerce Corporation worked hand in hand with the Vatican. And that was Alan Dulles, Jesus, or Jesus Angleton, Sir William Stevenson, William Donovan, as you mentioned. They moved Nazi money out of Europe to Switzerland or to Argentina, and they were working with the Vatican Bank. And in the 1950s, the money laundered by the Vatican Bank went back to the original German companies after World War II with the help of Western intelligence. Does it make sense what I just told you? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah. Okay, I just want to make sure that, yeah. that, I'm, that they're making sense. Because I'm reading off of notes that I'm prepared. Basically, what I'm talking about is, 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 is not only did the Vatican and the United States invest in Germany before World War II, before Hitler, all right, but they also moved the money out. And the, what I'm describing to you, the way it was done, BIS was used as one of the working banks. Front companies were set up by the Vatican in foreign countries all over the world corporations that the Borman group had set up all over the world. And then the money started being moved out through Swiss, through Argentina, through Bolivia, through Chile. And the rat line, of course, the monasteries and the cathedrals and all the roots that you've written about, the Russell, brilliantly in your work, they use former fascist priests, Croatian priests, the Ustashi, smuggle, they smuggled the Nazis, of course, for a price. And all of this was a price to be paid to the Vatican and Pope Pius XII for helping to sell visas, smuggle money out, charter steamships between Genoa and Buenos Aires. After the war, the Vatican did that to make sure that the loop was brought into Latin America. The Vatican was used as a cutout, using looted monies from the Vatican Bank to, the, to reestablish the Eustachy to use as a stay behind or what we now know as Gladio. And that's also, I mean, a big part of yep. what uh, the WCC was potentially involved in as well. I mean, you know, there's certainly indications that uh, Donovan, I mean, around the same time frame, had been meeting with uh, people in Italy, uh, you know, to set up some of these groups. They've been setting up similar networks in France and a lot of other areas where, um, you know, there were concerns because there were strong communist movements there. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I get, I mean, I definitely can see what you're saying with all this, Danny. I mean, it was definitely a very elaborate network that was using like a lot of these different front groups. And uh, you had sort of this you know, already sort of the nucleus of this international hierarchy with, uh, you know, some of the German and Italian interests, the Vatican interests, the Anglo-American interests. Um, to some extent, you know, we're still seeing that playing out today. Uh, Russ, did you have something to add? Well, you sure do. Go ahead, Russ. Oh, no, I, uh, I think, uh, I, I think that, you know, you, you summarize it well. It, you know, it, it, it makes sense in terms of a, a likely historical record uh, as part of the irrationally, irrational insanity of the period, you know. 
it, it's 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 amazing. Still, it just still dumbfounds me. Not because I have this false idealism or anything like that. It just amazes me. That Their perseverance is unbelievable because they are fighting not just for economic power. They are fighting, as we will see later, for a complete reconfiguration of the global world through a new intermarriage what they called an intermarian and what they called back then, which was a definition of fascism back then that we didn't get into and might not have time for this show. But that's what they're looking at. And, and of course, as we go on in further shows, Russ, the crusade for freedom is all tied to this, as you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so, that, much. You know, so much. So much. Yeah. yeah. I mean, this is all, this is why I started out by saying, and I guess, Stephen, I'll give you the last word or somebody, I'm going to make my last word, start out by saying, it's so hard to get your head around this. You've got to read so, so, so much stuff yeah. and, and find things that you, that you can't yeah. find in existence anymore. Right. So if, you got to I hope that, Yeah. I hope that listeners understand the, 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 the complexity that we're dealing with. Yeah, to put like what Daniel was in the perspective here, I mean, the Paul Manning book he's talking about, I mean, that's really been off the market now, I mean, for decades. And I mean, even getting a used copy of that, I mean, on Amazon can cost thousands of dollars in a lot of cases. Uh, so, I mean, there has been, you know, this really consorted effort really? to suppress. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. At least when I checked a couple of years ago, I mean, obviously it's possible, maybe some bootlegs have driven the price down, but, um, you know, there was definitely a consorted effort to suppress, you know, that book in particular for many years. But um, on that note, uh, we shall wrap up now. Uh, this has been a great chat and definitely looking forward to continuous and some future installments here. Uh, there's still a lot of material to unpack, but hopefully this has given you guys a little bit uh, to consider in terms of the early periods of fascism and how this broader international network that we are going to further explore came into being. Good night and good luck to you all. <laughs>